All right. Well, we're uh, here with some guests. We're going to have a special whiskey episode. This podcast is going to um, cross some uh, podcast lines. With us uh, is uh, Severin Henderson from Department 3C, a podcast. And next to him is um, Thomas Krall from Alpha Concepts podcast. Uh, both uh, are um, featured here at Fire and Iron Media. And uh, also in the studio today is Tony Staunton. You heard him on the L podcast on what wound up being another whiskey episode, but uh, <laughs> don't judge us. Woo. And Bill Besser, who is, we're going to get into what he does and uh, what he knows. And sitting here already, uh, prior to setting up this podcast, he already t- dumped knowledge on us <laughs> that, that was beyond uh, what we were expecting. So thank you all for being here. This is going to be a great podcast. And also in the studio uh, as a uh, unsilent observer, Steve Gatewood. Yeah, <laughs> that's 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 Department Three C's guest. So, right. <laughs> thanks uh, for being here. So uh, let's get started. So I I, I want to start with you, Bill. Can you give us a little bit of background? Because we're here to drink some whiskey and, and learn about uh, booze and, I'm just here for and the sample some of this. And then we're gonna have Thomas go and uh, we're gonna play with guns afterwards. No, so. no, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. no, no. <laughs> Um, so my background is <clears throat> I am a master brewer. Uh, I've owned a brewery in Massachusetts for about 15 years. I've also been uh, recently in the last 10 years doing distilling um, and learning the arts of distilling and the differences with uh, different brands of whiskey and the different types. Um, what we kind of brought here tonight is, of course, Irish whiskey. Um, and we're going to kind of cover the differences and ranges between um, just something called pot still, which is Irish moonshine. And what makes it a pot still, uh, we brought Slain, which of course is a triple cask Irish whiskey. And it is distilled a little bit differently, and it's also aged differently. And then we brought Redbreast, which is also a pot still, but it is aged and it has been barrel aged, whereas the tealing is not. And you'll get the differences in the flavors and the nuances of the types of barrels that it's aged in. And so forth. Are these yours? Uh, your your recipes? No. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. I wish I could claim Slam because it's fantastic, but it's no, I fantastic. can't. Fantastic. <laughs> so red red breast is made, and then it sits in barrels, and it's not the same with Slain and the other one. Uh, Slain is barrel aged, but it's unique in the fact that it's something called triple cast, and I'll get into that. Okay. Um, this pot still is just pure moonshine. It's Irish moonshine. <laughs> Irish moonshine. This is how uh, Irish whiskey got started. Uh, Mickey, it's the Irish word for whiskey is... Uh, uh, ish, ishkabaha. It means the water of life. Yes, I will drink to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is the original Irish whiskey that was brewed back in... can't remember from the history lesson that we did. The Stone Age? No, <laughs> yeah, 7th uh, century. Probably seventh century. Yeah, uh, Pre-Victorian times. Um, Slain is something modern, it's new, um, but it is a very unique whiskey in the fact that it's triple casked. And so this is actually aged in three different kinds of barrels, uh, raw oak, uh, whiskey barrel aged, and sherry barreled. And then it's mixed at the end. So it's a very unique way of doing things. You'll see other triple cask Irish whiskeys, but it's actually the same liquor. They just do it in three different kinds of barrels. This is done in three different barrels simultaneously. Uh and then blended at the end. Um, Redbreast, 12-year-old, aged, barreled, just a beautiful 
white tasting whiskey. Um, Do you want my credit card now or later? <laughs> <laughs> so, Bill, are these? Uh, you you talked about um, uh, that they're blended, but they're not considered blended whiskeys, right? No, no. So, um, for example, if you look at the the Swain, um, they do one whiskey. Uh, they brew one whiskey. It's barley. They use barley for a grain, um, and then they take that uh, the whiskey when it first gets out of the still, and they'll put it in the three different barrels. Uh, Row uh, happens to be Jack Daniel's uh, whiskey aged barrels. Okay. And then sherry barrels, and at the very end they'll take the three and blend it. Um, now we did get to taste each individual ones last February. Uh, he would not tell us what the secret is with the amounts that he blends it with. But you can taste all three when you taste. Uh, when you taste whiskey, uh, in the front of your tongue, uh, you'll get the sweetness. Uh, you'll get the different flavors in the oak. And as it rolls past on, your, uh, past on the backside of your tongue, you'll start feeling the oak. And you'll get that woody flavor. So if you want it, when you do tasting, you really want to bring it into your mouth and let it roll all the way down. Okay. So I just learned how to drink all over again. <laughs> I'm with that. Right. <laughs> all right. So um, we're going to start with the teeling. Starting with the and this Irish Moonshine. This is Irish Moonshine. And what are your personal thoughts about, like right now we're tasting, so we don't want to put any ice in here, right? Um, if, if you put ice on whiskey, it's just as good because it doesn't melt as fast, especially if it's a solid ice cube. Um. All right, get in there, Bill. All right. Um, it, it sm um, the smell is... So what we're drinking is the Irish moonshine, right? So this is pot still. And a pot still is just simply a big pot. You put grain in it. You add water, add yeast. Made in a bathtub. You could do it in a bathtub. I prefer a closed container, though, because you want to keep the uh, carbon dioxide and you want to keep the temperature uh, between uh, 50 to 65 degrees or else the yeast dies. Okay. It's a lot sweeter than I thought it would be. Yes. Tastes really clean to me. It tastes really simple. It tastes simple. It's, yeah. There's no there's no columnar distillation. It's just uh, you boil off the alcohol at about 200 degrees. Uh, you don't want to boil the water. You just want to boil the alcohol. Oh. Uh, it goes up through a, a column, and when it gets to the very top of the column, it turns into uh, turns into liquid, and that's alcohol. Okay. Um, so the alcohol actually follows one path. It starts at the very bottom. Uh, comes up as a vapor, goes up to the top, comes out of a tube. There's no re... Uh, in a columnar distill, you will actually do that multiple times. So this is just Irish whiskey, Irish moonshine. It's made with barley. Um, it's made with barley. Uh, no other grains. Well, I like it. <laughs> I mean, to keep it simple, I, I, I like it. I said it tastes simple. I, I like it a lot. It tastes just very... Pleasant. It's just basic. It's, it's, it's like it's here for you. It's like a. It's like a little. It's like a nice sperm handshake. <laughs> it reminds me of the person who I said does a little bit of uh, distilling on. Yeah, it reminds me of that. But, well, but that's in the, like the woods somewhere, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're gonna go with that. We're um, gonna go with. So that. the difference between moonshine that you that's made in America, um, and what is made in in uh, in Teeling in Ireland, is uh, Irish, Ireland does not have corn. 
so they use barley. Um, and this is actually malted barley, and malted barley is barley that's been exposed to heat, and the grain actually starts to swell, and that gives it that little bit of a sweeter taste. In the U.S., uh, moonshine is made with corn, and they'll add sugar to accelerate the process and get more alcohol. Um, the basic distilling process is the yeast, uh, when you add water to grain, it turns into sugar. Uh, it actually releases the sugars from the grain. When you put the yeast in, the yeast converts the sugar to alcohol, and a byproduct of it is carbon dioxide. Okay? That's basic. That's basic chemistry, right? Basic chemistry. Okay. You can do this in your in your kitchen if you'd want, but you will go to jail. Like that. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> Actually, it's kind of funny because Michigan, uh, you can have a legal distillery uh, for a $199 license. Really? You just can't be a felon. <laughs> well, um, nowadays we have, you can home brew beer. Um, and what makes the distinction where you cross the, the lines here is the amount of alcohol that's, that's um, in the, the end product or is it the, the way it's made? Uh, it's actually the way it's made. So, so you in, can brew um, beer all day long, but if you move into brewing alcohol... When you distill it, that's when the ATF wants their money. Okay. Uh, Michigan wants their money also if you have a, a distiller's license. That's, so that's <laughs> why you're paying the $200, the 200 bucks to get going? No, you're just paying the $200 to get registered so they know they come look at you and see how much you brewed because oh, you got to keep track okay. of it. <laughs> so just making it's sure, just keeping stuff. track on you just right. to make sure uh, you're not doing too much. Brewing, you use a different kind of yeast. Um, and you add hops, and hops is what preserves beer. So when you brew beer, you actually add the preservation hops that prevents it from spoiling, and then you add flavoring hops um, after you boil it. But you don't evaporate the liquid. Um, you put it in a, in a fermenter, and then you add the yeast, and that converts the what they call wort to a beer. Um, in distilling, you're actually boiling the alcohol out of the mixture. And that's where the distilling comes from. You're you're boiling the alcohol up, but you're capturing it you're on capturing its way out, right? Yeah. So and it turns, you know, you take a vapor, uh, you're you're you trying to burn it at 200 degrees, it down. and as it rises, it cools and it turns into liquid, and it goes down a tube, and you collect the water. And you just catch it. Just so catch it. why so we kinda. why we have you here, Bill? Can you just run us through the terminology really quick? What makes a bourbon a bourbon? What makes a whiskey like with the terminologies? I know like Scotch and bourbons are from where they're made. Uh, what other distinctions can be made with um, terminology here? Scotch, is, uh, Scotch, rye, bourbon, Irish whiskey is all whiskey. Uh, it's made with a grain. Uh, it's made with a yeast. Uh, rums are typically made with sugar only. Um, but bourbons themselves, like you can't make bourbon in, in Scotland. You can I could if I use Kentucky water and Kentucky corn, <laughs> which would be incredibly expensive to but, have shipped But, that, over but there. stuff like that is what makes the distinction. Like this is a bourbon. When you go buy a bottle of bourbon, that's what you're getting, right? Right. Kentucky and, bourbon is very unique in the fact that uh, because Kentucky has a lot of limestone, um, they'll actually pump water into the ground in what is called a natural aquifer, and then take the water out of the natural aquifer, and the water comes out of perfect balanced pH of zero. That's what I was, that was my question, because I heard you say the pH was different on the Kentucky water. Yes, it comes out zero. Okay. And that's what makes bourbon, um, because of the water they use and the corn. Now, do you think the big brewers who are putting out hundreds of gallons an hour, do you think that they are 
altering their water pH using a water that is different and then adding or subtracting chemicals, bases, and alkalines to make it what it needs to be? I would hope not, but it's large corporations. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly my point. Uh, it's whatever they want to do. It's whatever. Well, it's right. just like whatever everything else. Like you want to start with really good ingredients, whether you're, you know, cooking, baking, or whatever. And I imagine it's the same with alcohol. You know, if you're starting with really good ingredients, you're going to get a better product. If you're going to be consistent in either brewing or distilling, um, your grain has to be the same all the time. So you want to buy from the same uh, farmer. Grown on the same farm it's because if it's same different farm. dirt, it's going to have a different flavor. That's correct. If you're going to do that, you want to blend. So if you're buying from five different, you want to blend the same five different farmers' grains into one. Uh, but it has to be consistent. Any change in grain, any change in water is going to affect the flavor, the, the final flavor. So it's, it has to be con- very quality controlled. So that all speaks to the recipe that you're putting out, that you're making for each person. Because that's another thing when we were pre-talking, you were talking about different recipes. So water is definitely part of it. Water is definitely part of it. The type of grain that you use is definitely part of it. And also if it's malted or unmalted. So unmalted grain is just raw grain. They take it off of the field. You bring it in. You put it in a silo. You add it to your water or you add it to your mash. You make a mash out of it, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, if you use malted barley, it gets a different flavor. And the reason why a lot of Irish whiskeys went away from malted because uh, England was taxing malted grain. England was taxing. Wow, yeah, the dirty a- limeys. <laughs> Imagine that. So they couldn't control the liquor because they didn't know how much people made. But they could control the grain. So they were taxing the grain. So they started taxing malted liquor, uh, malted barley. So you had to buy malted barley. You had to pay a tax on it. So these Irishmen... Uh, shall we say, uh, inspirational, decided that they'll use unmalted grain, and it came out the same way. And okay. this is actually well, They mixed grain. it. I think some of them, it was a blend. Yeah, some of it's a blend, but this is unmalted grain. This is just raw, raw barley. So what's the relationship with Old English fine malt liquor? <laughs> uh, Most likely Irish blend. whiskey rebranded. <laughs> Uh, scotch is the same thing. It's blended from, uh, they'll use rye or barley. And, but the thing with scotch is, is they actually blend. So they'll buy yeah, different... If they don't get the uh, barley that they like, they'll actually get it from Ireland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, they, if, they don't, if they're not happy with this. So if they're not happy with the taste that comes they'll out... Buy, they'll buy barley from Ireland until uh, they get the right flavor profile. Okay. Uh, but there is a new whiskey coming from my hometown called Waterford's. And what they're doing is they're making all, like what you were saying about terroir, they're actually making all, every bottle has like a, the name of the farm and the farmer where, where the barley came from. So they're trying to establish that. Because like if you, when you drink cognac, like they know where the grapes came sure. from. But for some reason with scotch and Irish whiskey, they don't have it defined. So he, he's, he's one of the first guys to do it. So it'll be interesting to see how it works out. Well, you look at Jack Daniels and Jim Beam. Um, they actually buy all their grain uh, in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. But they have their own farms. So sure. Corporations just, that large are going to have yeah. their own. Um, I don't know about water. <laughs> I don't know about water since all their bourbon burned up. Uh, they had that big oh, fire. Oh, yeah, that's right. What was that last summer? Or last, uh, 2019. Yeah, all the, far, the uh, yeah. storage bins burnt. So uh, I'm not sure what they're doing now. Um, smaller brewery or smaller distilleries in Kentucky, like uh, Barton's, for example, uh, they everything. They have very good quality control. They own their own farms. They own their own water. Everything comes from their their aquifer that they own. Um, the distiller is very 
uh, anal to the point of, of him being OCD about his quality of his ingredients. Well, that's what you want, though, really. If you want yeah. your lead guy to have that quality. They don't do uh, Jack Daniels quantities. Well, of course. Uh, or Jim yeah. Beam's. Smaller, they, smaller. smaller. They're called small batch bourbons. And to mm -hmm. me, the small batch bourbons are just fantastic. Well, but also there's a difference in price because take, for example, retail here in Chicago, Jim Beam is going to run you like $20, $19 for uh, a bottle. And Jack is probably going to be $22 for a bottle. But I'm sure some of these bottles that we're drinking are upwards, you know, $40 uh, easy. I will tell you that Slane is about 25 Really? This is well, we a, haven't got there yet, so I should This is about 60 okay? okay. To me, to me, so this, the moonshine those, the is 60 brood, The one brewed in the bathtub is 60 bucks. <laughs> 60 bucks, <laughs> right. But to me, this is a better Irish whiskey. What, what, what constitutes how expensive... Uh, whiskey is, uh, you know, in what this case, you have something that's triple cast, triple distilled, and it's, it's cheaper what the, than what they want to sell it for. If, really, if I can add, it's a capitalist society. Whatever the buyer is willing to pay. Um, so you really shouldn't judge your whiskey based on price. It's not based on price. You really should do it on on taste. Okay. So you got to buy a bunch of whiskeys and drink them all. Oh no! Come to uh, Irish whiskey tastings or whiskey tastings. No, uh, I like the. You, you really got to <laughs> buy a bunch of whiskeys <laughs> and drink them all. Drink them with friends, though. Yeah. Well, while we're, um, you know, why we have you guys here, uh, Severin. Why don't you tell us about your podcast while we're all together here? Oh. You, you actually record in the Fire and Iron Studios right here in this very studio. Absolutely. And we just did one this afternoon. Um, give, us a little, give us a little rundown on you know, what people can expect to hear from Department 3C, a podcast, which we talked about really has no rules. Yes, my podcast has no rules. My podcast, Department 3C Presents a Podcast, is a show about any and everything. It's a show... Hosted by me, I'm a first responder, I'm a firefighter, and, um, former paramedic, um, former police officer, um, all of the above. I've worked in every realm in the arena of public safety, and it's just a show from the mindset of that. I try and make sure every show is somehow, some way connected to fire, and sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't, but that's what my show is generally about. It's about... Public safety, um, getting mindset, motivation, public speaking, just it's a blend of different things. It's a blend of different shows, and it's my passion project to get a message of positivity out to the world. Okay. So earlier tonight, before we got on the air, uh, you were talking about special training for high-rises. Uh, yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> and how yeah, long is that general order? How many, pages, how, many, how many pages is that general order? Um, 18 at the, la <laughs> at the last time I looked at it. And it's going to be another revision of that order. Um, it's the high-rise order. We were just studying for promotional tests. We still are. We're always studying for promotional tests. And with that being said, we have to know those orders backwards and forwards, forwards and back, because we often get fires in high-rises. And those are some of the most dangerous fires. Regular structure fires, a lot of times you can deploy a few different tricks. I mean, if you're not that high, you can kind of go to a window, hang out, somebody can come get you. If you have a fire in a high-rise, especially here in the city of Chicago where our high-rises are upwards 70, 80 floors, um, 
I don't think you want to be hanging out on the 80th floor or the 90th floor of a building saying, hey, come help me, come get me. So we just have to deploy different tricks. I don't want to call them tricks, tactics. We have to deploy different tactics to save ourselves and save the citizens of the city of Chicago. Who was who your most interesting guest so far? How long have we been doing this? Uh, it wasn't me, was six it? Six months? You, well, <laughs> right, that was the that thing. That was a good podcast. I've had... That was a good podcast. My, my partner that I brought with me, he's been a guest on my show. Tom's been a guest. Tony's been a guest. Vince was a guest. Um, I have two, two so far. Um, my, my one episode where I had a buddy of mine, Michael Spencer, that's my most recent episode where he kind of talked about his story going from being not alive to being alive and thriving and being a nice, good person that's contributed to society. And my other episode I had early on was my human trafficking episode. And a lot of people hit me and liked that one. They said, I never knew this much stuff was going on in the world of human trafficking. I said, neither did I. So That's why you wanted to have him on the that's podcast. That's why I wanted to have him on. That's why I said my show is kind of a mix-up of a lot of different things. Like, like, like you said, there are no rules on yeah. Well, I think uh, you picked two that I probably would have picked if you would have asked me to. Uh, Thank you. The one with uh, Spencer, you know, if you want to listen to an inspirational story, um, listen to Mike's story from start to finish. This guy goes from being, you know, like uh, like a, like a stud in the fire department, and that's all he wanted to do. He has a setback health wise. He goes. He basically goes into heart failure. And he's feeling like crap for a while. And finally, they, you know, like, it's going to take us a long time for us to, like, admit that something's wrong and actually go to the hospital. So they finally, that that should be a testament on how bad he was feeling that he was like, okay, I think it's time to go to the hospital. And he didn't get there, you know, he should have got there a couple days before he actually went there because... He wound, he winds up being in heart failure, and the doctor's like, "How are you alive? How are you even alive? <laughs> How are you walking around right, right. now?" And um, he fights back, and you know, they got to a point where he was just gonna have to carry this this box to keep his heart going for the rest of his life. Elvan, and yep. against like the cardiologist, against all these like advanced medicine guys, he's like, "I don't want to do that. We have to have some other way." They're like, "There is no other way." He talks him into it. And he's out there, and he's he's back to being a stud again. And um, but his journey there is like crazy. All this ridiculous stuff happened, and it was a he crazy, had an crazy reaction. Story. Yeah, like you said, <laughs> he, the box he had to yeah, carry. He goes around, in the he goes to get, to get a um, a cat scan. Was it? Yep. And yep. Uh, yep. the cat scan. the dye that they injected him with, all of a sudden his lips start swelling uh, up. I and bet he, you can't eat shellfish either. Uh, I don't know. You know what? I didn't ask him yeah, that. I, I needed you. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you? you? Because it's iodine-based dye, I would imagine, right? And iodine uh, it's called sodium hypate. And if you're allergic to shellfish, you'll be allergic to the dye. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you picked two of the good ones that, uh, for all of you guys listening uh, and you want to you know, tune into a new podcast, definitely start with those ones and work your way back. Because I think all of them are great, but those two those definitely. Those two stick out. Uh, what about you, Thomas? You've had some pretty amazing guests on your show. Tell us a little bit about the background of your podcast. Why do you have to put me on the hot seat, Vince? Hey, it's time. <laughs> you sit there and you you put everybody else on the hot seat. You know? I do. I'm that's what I'm on. good at. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, as you alluded to earlier in the podcast, we're going to get drunk and shoot guns. And I, <laughs> I, I, threw a, I threw a hissy fit to that one. My podcast, The Alpha Cons... Concepts podcast is uh, all about the uh, the gun culture. Uh, myself as a, a firearm instructor of uh, seven years, um, you know, we're just sharing the the knowledge and talking to uh, different people across the gun culture. 
you know, manufacturers and dealers and new gun owners. And I think you asked me, uh, you know, what about me? And I'm assuming you're going to ask what uh, podcast uh, sticks out. But the, the new gun owner podcast was, uh, I think, a great one to uh, shed a lot of light to people who don't uh, really understand all of the hurdles and the hoops that uh, gun owners have to jump through. And they, they talk about, you know, you can just, uh, anyone can get a, a, a firearm, anyone can get a gun. Uh, former President Obama said it's easier to get a gun than it is to rent a book from the library. And that just simply absolutely is not so. And the the uh, New Gun Owner podcast, which was the, uh, the second podcast we put out, uh, really sticks out in my mind as being one of the the better podcasts because of just the amount of knowledge that the the two guests just simply sharing their story you know waiting weeks and months for uh, okay so I have to get this and that's going to take me months and then I have to get that and that's going to take me weeks and it's you know six months before they can actually own a gun and if someone is going to uh, you know they wanted the guns both of the guests uh, for protection right uh, they and were what inspired scared. them to go down there route like why they why are they now becoming gun owners right that was interesting part of it because there were very different There's, reasons right and they were across the country too we yeah. had one from new jersey and one from joliet which is right outside chicago but they were both afraid because of the things that are going on in our nation uh and the civil unrest and you know here are two people who never really thought they needed a gun and and both completely uh, unique individuals from different walks of life decided that now is the time to take their own personal protection seriously. Uh, I really think that uh, that podcast, I, they, were, they were all great. I mean, we, we, we had the Lyman guest uh, uh, who was the manufacturer for reloading equipment, and uh, the, the information he had was awesome. And the most recent podcast uh, of the uh, Big Sky Cigars, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed speaking with him because, uh, you know, they're just good people, honest you know, sportsmen, and, and they're trying to to uh, run a business and, and go after, you know, the average Joe, the average person. And that was a, a good podcast as well. The, they've all been great, but again, uh, the new gun owner one just definitely stands out in you my mind. You know which one um, I took the most information from was when you had uh, Masada Ayub. Oh, yeah, Masada um, Ayub. How can, I mean, he's... Yeah, I mentioned uh, Bill here, our, our whiskey aficionado is uh, an encyclopedia, but Masada Ayub, when it comes to personal protection and, and, and self-defense, uh, unsurpassed knowledge. I mean, it's like he's got a, a bajillion terabytes worth of information uh, on that subject. Uh, hard to, to beat, and, and if you can ever listen to anything that he puts out and definitely go back and listen to that podcast. I tell people, if you own a firearm, you need to listen to that podcast. Absolutely. There are things in there that he said that I would never have thought about, but this guy is basically a hired gun for um, people who are on the receiving end from the government who are trying to um, basically jam somebody up for, you know, defending their themselves with a firearm and they kind of is he hired by the NRA to? Uh, um, I don't to, think to he go- has an affiliation with the NRA. Actually, a few weeks after we did the podcast with him, he was named the president of the Second Amendment Foundation, um, which was you know I, I think that's he's a good fit for that. Um, 
he is what's known as an expert witness. So uh, if you find yourself in a situation where you've had to use uh, force to defend yourself, this um, guy's the this guy's the guy you want in your he, corner. He, yeah, he's been sure. doing it since the '70s. I don't think there's many people, if any, that have as much experience as him. Um, between the cases he's been on, as well as you know his network of other expert witnesses that share that information, you know he's able to cite this, that, and the other, and talk. He he can talk. We probably could have done a ten-hour podcast. <laughs> just on the Zimmerman case, and yeah. that's one case, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, just the subtle nuances of every single angle that a prosecutor might try to throw at you. And, you know, he's like, um, let's say he's like uh, Babe Ruth, and he knows how to swing the bat when the pitcher throws a curveball or throws a fastball. Uh, and that's, you know, again, you know, it's, it, he's an expert witness. He's going to testify mm-hmm. on your behalf because uh, a good lawyer is not going to want you to testify because a, uh, a good prosecutor is going to get you jammed up on your words and make you say something you don't mean to say. So you need someone that has that um, background who can scientifically point to facts and knowledge. Well, and that's it, who he is. To that point, one of the my biggest takeaways from that when he was on was he said, if you're involved in a firearm incident, when the police interview you, they're going to say, they're going to ask you, how far away was he? And he, and Masada Ayub said, don't give them any distance. Don't say he was 10 feet. He was about 12 feet. Because they're going to go and they're going to measure that out exactly. And if you're estimating 10 feet and now he's 8 feet, they're going to play that against you. He, he said... All of a sudden you're a liar. Right. He said... Tell them he was close enough that I feared for my life. And just like that, you know, terminology and the Garbage, way that, yeah. that he's telling you to, I was like, man, that makes so much sense. Like something so small like that could be the difference with, you know, basically you go into jail for defending your life. And the fact so, of the matter is everything he's recommending comes from real life cases yeah. that he's been on or that he's familiar with. So on the other side of that, there's a... Uh, in South Carolina, there's a city solicitor, same thing as a DA is here, who took all his police officers and sent them to training school and acting school so that when they give testimony, they give it accurately and they do it with such emotion. Really? Right. And he and actually trained his officers. It's yeah, dirty. I was, about, but, I was just about to ask you, you guys, but, in your opinion, is that dirty? But 100%, you, you do. 100% Seven, dirty. Dirty? Yeah, that's, that's a little that's <laughs> okay, personalized. Well, let, let's, put it, let's play devil's advocate here. Is it dirty if... They're using that same acting and that same coercion. Let's call it. I don't think to, you put, would, to prosecute I, somebody I that we you know. I don't think you would find is, Masada Ayub trying to play on an emotional heartstring. He's going to come there with knowledge and facts, um, and he's he's not going to you know be dramatic about it. Sorry, I mean he. This guy's all business. All business. All business. And uh, like I said, if if I ever in trouble, Thomas, if you ever read the news and I'm in trouble. Get Masada. Call him up. <laughs> Call him up. Don't, yeah, get him don't I need you, big guy. Yeah. <laughs> One eight hundred Masada. Right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I'm just. I'm gonna see him walk in, and I'm just gonna kick back. Yeah, it's gonna be all it's right. It's gonna be all right. <laughs> but, but I, I want to add. You know, obviously, someone a professional like that uh, isn't going to uh, to come cheap, and so it behooves anyone who uh, takes their personal protection seriously to consider self defense insurance. And I'm not gonna you don't throw, call, you don't like using that term insurance. I, well, right, insurance insurance has a connotation, a legal connotation that um, people you know 
obviously an insurance company has requirements and there are certain companies that are considered insurance and there are certain companies that are considered legal defense uh, policies or um, prepayment. Um, but whatever you do choose, uh, you probably do want to have some type of prepaid legal service, self-defense insurance, whatever terminology you want to use. And yes, I do try to avoid insurance because most of the companies aren't true to definition insurance companies. You want to have that uh, on your side because, you know, if you're talking about bail, five to 10,000, you're talking about uh, um, uh, your retainer fee, five to 10,000. And if it actually goes to trial, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay for your lawyer and your expert witnesses and uh, all of that. Um, you know, it's just something for, for everyone to consider and it's a sad reality of the world that we live in, um, but it is what it is. That is the world that we live in. And you can throw your, your hands in the air and say it shouldn't be like this, and it shouldn't, but it is. Don't you say that isn't isn't one of your phrases, every bullet comes with a lawyer attached to it? Absolutely. <laughs> every bullet that exits your gun has a lawyer attached it, to it. Aren't you surprised that I remember all these? I'm not. <laughs> you know what? Not, I'm actually impressed. It, it tells me you know, the fact that uh, you're able to recite from my podcasts, uh, from Severin's podcasts. Uh, it, it tells me that uh, um, you know, you're, you're actually listening. So thank I you. am listening, man. <laughs> I am listening. You know what? To do what, what I do with you guys and here with you guys, if I'm not into it, if I don't like, if I'm not captivated and is interested in your topics, we wouldn't be sitting here. You know, sure. we, I, I sought you guys out, you know, like me and Severin started a conversation. Tom, I, I, you know, I made a phone call to you. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that you guys are with us. It means a lot. And, you know, as this company grows, you know, we're all going to grow. And I, I can't, you know, thank you guys enough for being here. Well, I um, for one appreciate you having me and <laughs> letting, giving me the time because I call you up and say, hey, I got an idea. You say, come on in. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I try in. to make it as easy, you know, if I'm there, if if I got nothing, you know, if I can clear the schedule by all means, there's a handful of things that would keep me. But anything else, I'll clear the schedule for you. Um well, enough about us. Let's let's back see. to the booze. Yeah. Well, let's <laughs> let's uh, before we get into our next deep dive here, let's go to our next deep dive of the uh, the next liquor. So, Bill, what do we got going on here? Um, so the next one is slain, and I'm going to give you a little bit of history uh, to all those who you know uh, U2 music. Uh, their first album was recorded at Slain Castle, consuming uh, much slain. Whiskey. No, that's back before they actually started brewing whiskey or distilling whiskey. Um, but what's interesting is the guy who does, it's Alex Cunningham. He's the uh, Lord's son and uh, soon heir to the title. Um, during the recording of the first album, you uh, two thought the castle was haunted because they would tune their instruments at night and they go to bed and they come up in the morning and the instruments had moved and detuned. It was actually him and his sister going down and playing with the instruments after everyone <laughs> went to bed. So there's a history behind this. Um, Slain is something uh, recently on the market, two years, three years? Yeah, I think about two and a half years. Two and a half, three it's years. Slain. Oh, it's been, you're right, it's three years, actually. Three it was years. her birthday a while ago. Yeah. Um, it is very unique in the fact that it's triple cast. And they did something different that nobody else has done. And um, as I said before, they actually aged the same liquor in three different barrels. So you get raw oak, uh, you get uh, <clears throat> whiskey-aged barrels, and it happens to be Jack Daniels. And that's just because the owner... Uh, who owns Swain, also owns Jack Daniels, mm -hmm. so he gets the barrels. Well, that's very convenient. And sherry. Um, they actually uh, distill the sherry. They throw the sherry away just to get the barrels. Oh, they don't even sell the sherry. The, sherry, they, they, the barrels were 100 times barrels. more than what the sherry is. Wow. 
Wow. Wow. That okay. seems like a waste. I don't know what sherry is, but it tastes sounds it's like a It's a fortified wine. It's a fortified wine. So it's like cooking, sweet. right? It's like cooking wine, oh. but it's but you sweet. Have, you can have like really expensive, like. They do have very expensive sherries. Yeah, yes. there's like, it's like dessert wines. There's yeah. some sherries that are dessert wines. They're super good. Yeah, like $45, $50 a glass, too. You know, and yeah. if you roll them around in the glass, you can see the sugar still. The, the legs, I, right? Yeah. Come down. They're, so, uh, but they just actually just. I think they own the sherry company that they just get the barrels from because the barrels are worth more than the more thing. Than I the think sherry. that's what we more gotta find sherry. it. We, now the whiskey our barrels. Yeah, yeah, find out our where new company. Say, hey, I'll <laughs> take it. Fire and iron sherry. <laughs> <laughs> now what's unique about this is is that they actually only use the barrels once. Really? Because once you take the flavor out of them, it's gone. That's interesting too. I okay. Now okay. Jim Beam reuses barrels. Mm-hmm. Um, they also sell them. Um, technically, you're supposed to use a fresh barrel every time um, to be bourbon whiskey. Uh, some companies get around that. Um, so anyway, uh, and then they blend it. Uh, they won't tell you what the blend is. But we, uh, they had a decom, uh, what they call a decon, um, deconstruction, deconstruction like a, here at uh, like a Heritage. reverse engineering. Yeah, um, and they actually brought the three different ones in and let us taste each one. And then taste the combined. But like I said, he wouldn't tell us what the ratio was. But <laughs> that, that's, the, that's what really makes Lane is that ratio, right? Yes, that ratio. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is actually um, so, somewhat of a unique taste and unique flavor um, because it also makes, it mixes well with other things. So like you can make Irish coffee with it. Uh, you can make... Um, we should put the microphone next when he's pouring. Because it's yeah. a delicious sound. It is a delicious sound. This is a, uh, that's what I said, this is a blend. It's called triple cask. So should we go through the whole process like we should smell it? Smell it. Okay. Swirl it around. So. You can smell the sherry. The sherry comes out very distinctly. The sherry is that sweetness that we're smelling, right? Yeah, that's what, that's what I smell first is the, the sweet. It, it smells so much better than the bathtub whiskey. Yes, of course. <laughs> Um, the actually the whiskey's been aged for I love it. four Free, years. I love your honesty. It's pretty <laughs> refreshing. So it's been actually aged four years and then uh, blended and then bottled and sold. So four years in whiskey time is nothing, right? It, um, it's the minimum. It's the minimum. It's okay. the minimum. What, what were you saying about three hundred and sixty-four days or something like that? Uh, Ireland is three years in a day. Three, three years, years in a day. That's the minimum for to be an Irish whiskey. Okay. Yeah, except now the pot still is not aged. Uh, well, that would have to be at least, it would still have to be three. Sitting in the bathtub for three so years, when, guys, when, come on. When you say age, it, it age, the clock on aging starts after that three yeah, years. Yeah, they put it into, a lot of the, most of the Irish whiskeys are all ex-bourbon casts, and they just, they just uh, put, you know, they just put them away for a couple of years. and They have to rotate them. No. All they have to be barrels. Because that, that's where you get the color from and right. everything like and that. And a lot right? of the flavor, the, like the fruitiness of certain uh, woods, um, the, the oakiness. So let's talk about the different. So like raw oak um, basically just takes the, uh, what are the acid, the, the acids that are out of the whiskey. Um, but you so can taste raw oak. What you're saying is the oak is actually sucking acid or whatever out of the liquid. Yes, it and doesn't so add anything. It doesn't impart any. Doesn't impart anything. Other than it just color? takes it out. It's Other more of color. a filter, huh? Really? It's oh, a filter. It's more of a right. Wow. More of a filter. Yeah, that's than an additive. 
So I, the, I'm glad I'm here today. We are so we are doing some the, learning. The charcoal <laughs> learning, right? The charcoal barrels take out more of that, so you get much. The more charcoal of is the burnt. Well, they'll the take burnt. the oak and they'll pre-burn it. You just pre-burn it, right. and that actually takes more of it out. Raw oak, you get it, it will give it a little bit of the oak flavor because you do get some of the enzymes out of the oak. You do get some of the oak flavor, but for most part, it's just color, and it takes something out. Now, a cherry barrel, because it's been used as to brew sherry actually imparts the sherry sugars. Right, because it has that in the, in the wood already. And this, the wood this one tastes much What was much the third sweeter. one again? The, huh? What was the, the third barrel? Raw oak, uh, whiskey aged oh, okay. or whiskey so barrels. W- what is the whiskey doing? Is it imparting? It does have some of the flavor because in order to ship barrels from the U.S. to Ireland, they have to keep the whiskey in it because it'll dry out and crack. So they don't oh. take all the whiskey out. That keeps and they have to roll them. Actually, what, you have to roll the barrels. What is the angel share? That's just the evaporation? No. The, um, What's that? It, it, can you explain that to us? Because sure. I've heard about it, and I never really got an actual answer. But um, a, The stiller will take, and he'll sample every barrel every year or every six months. Or every day. Uh, <laughs> uh, nope, not ready. You won't have much wicker left if you do that. Uh, but he'll pick certain barrels that have a unique flavor. Because either the oak is different or the charcoal is different or whatever. And he'll mark that. Um, those barrels is what they call the angel cut. Uh, and that's just a different barrel. Oh, so the angel cut is just something that he's marking as this one. This has is mine. This is, this is something special. Oh, yes. I thought there was something like they lose, like the liquor loses a percentage of volume. It does. And. That's it what does. they call but, the angel And then share. they have the devil's cut, which is what's left in the barrel when they take everything else out. Okay. Because oh, okay. they have two different um, distillers that have that as the name of the... The devil's yeah. cut? Yeah, the it's devil's cut. Yeah, it's, it's a great marketing concept, right? isn't it? Oh, they have, they have, <laughs> I'm about to say they have a great actress <laughs> on, on the um, commercial. She, she sells it. Just her alone. So. Yeah, it's, oh, that's, it's great because they, they from, charge uh, you about 10 to 15 percent, and it's the same liquor that you're drinking out of the beginning because there's no way to determine the difference. Yeah, yeah. What's yeah. left in the bottom of the barrel is called lees or dregs, um, and it does have some pulp in it. From Throw the wood it through a coffee filter and enjoy. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> what the Is there anything that, that's done with that stuff at the bottom? Um, no, usually they leave them in the barrels so the barrels don't dry out and they sell them. So distiller, I mean, breweries right now, the biggest thing is barrel-aged... Uh, barrel-aged beer. Barrel-aged beer. Yeah. Oh my God, it's... I mean, they sell a barrel well, I think for that's what you, Isn't that what that Founders was? Isn't that... Yeah, that's barrel That aged. beer that you guys are drinking right there? I, I think that was... Uh, brewing uh, a barrel. No, that's just Scotch-style ale. Oh, Scotch-style. Scotch okay. so, uh, barrel-aged wine now. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the barrel-aged that they do wine is raw oak. They won't do that with whiskey barrels. Let me ask you a question. Uh, we were talking about when we talked about the moonshine, and maybe even before uh, the pre-talk, um, you were mentioning how you're boiling the the mash, and that evaporates the alcohol. Um, and there's that old saying that moonshine will make you blind. Is, now, correct me if I'm wrong, because this is not based on any educated opinion, Methane burns off at a slower, uh, uh, lower temperature than alcohol, so the methane burns off first. And if you capture that and bottle it, that's what you're actually drinking, and that's what makes you blind. Is that just a wives' tale, or is no, that true? I used to blind because I used to use radiators, and what they're doing is going blind from the lead. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> there so, you go. So bathtub brewing is not advice. Um, but <laughs> the methane, you don't want to consume the methane. So, don't you let the first little bit drip off before? No. So let me explain the difference yeah, between a pot still and a columnar still. Swain is columnar stilled. 
A columnar still is much taller. In fact, it's like, could be as high as 90 feet. Um, in the case of swine, they have three columns that feed each other. Um, what happens is, is each uh, level of the columnar still has a different temperature of cooling in it. They use just water. So as the alcohol rises, it cools. Heavier alcohols um, will actually cool first, drop back down in, and then reboiled or revaporized. Okay. That's called columnar distillation. At the very top, what you're getting is this is the very light alcohol that you want to drink. Um, so that's the reason you use a columnar still. So everything it's I just pure. said is false. <laughs> it's that's a very polite <laughs> he, way of saying. That's what right. I wanted to say. That's yeah. what I heard. Yeah. You just said it in a really nice way. <laughs> you're you're <wrong>. no. <laughs> you're a gun guy. You know. Yeah, yeah. Stay in your lane, buddy. <laughs> no, but a columnar still, the alcohol that you get out of columnar still is much more pure, and you you burn off all the other waste types of alcohols that does that either affects flavor or is bad for your health and so forth. Moonshine is just pure alcohol. Um, it, right now, of course, they don't run it through radiators because they've learned that lead and solder is not good for you. Uh, so they try to do copper. Well, they do sell silver solder for all you, you know, want to be the still <laughs> Yeah, right. Now I have a question. Um, we were talking about the mashes. Um, sour mash. And what, what's the definition and what makes a sour mash and all of that fun stuff? So mash is just any kind of grain with water in it. Okay. And you add yeast in order to make the turn the mash into uh, alcohol. Sour mash is actually grain that's gone bad. It has a sour flavor, and you could add an enzyme to do that. And it has a different type of flavor. So when you get sour mash whiskey, it tastes totally different than you get mash whiskey. Okay. Yeah. Now, now I want to taste the sour mash to see if I can taste the difference. It's rotting. It's rotted whiskey. It's, it, it's <laughs> not really rotted. It. it just turns sour. It has a sour taste. If you taste the liquid out of it, it tastes like sugar. And it has a sour, kind of a sour taste. They just put it. They put an enzyme in to do it. Well, Bill, let's get in. Like, how did you get into this? Like, give us give us a little background on you. Um, I've always been a distiller or a brewer. Um, in uh, Where did early, you start? Where did you at South Carolina in Charleston? Okay. Um, I got very interested in um, how to brew beer uh, because I got very tired of uh, Budweiser and Miller and so forth. Um, I could drink a Budweiser and I'll get a headache, and the reason is is because they don't naturally carbonate; uh, they don't have time. So what they do is they add carbolic acid in the bottling process. Is that what gives you the hangover? That's what gives you the hangover. I thought the hangovers were from the impurities and the sugars. No, no, it's really just from the carbolic acid they really? use to carbonate the beer. Um, so I got interested in it. <clears throat> um, I had some time on my hands, so I actually went to Germany and became a master brewer. So wow. I actually went and took uh, a course. That is define time. Right? Yeah, define time. How long? I mean, I'm, you're saying become a master brewer. I'm thinking like 10 years. No, it's a year. You go to school. Oh, okay. You actually go to school in Germany. You become a master brewer. You get certified and licensed. Uh, at any particular brewery? Uh, it's not a brewery. It's actually a course that they issue or they offer in certain universities in, okay. in Germany. They don't do it in the U.S. Because that's like the major leagues of beer brewing, right? Yeah. To learn from it, them. You learn from them, but you also learn all the differences in the different yeasts. Uh, there are over 70 different yeasts you can use to brew beer, uh, over 150 different hops. And the combination of hops and yeast is what gives you the flavor of the beer. It also controls the amount of alcohol. Um, so for like a, uh, an IPA, any of pale ale, everyone brews it. 
uh, it's a day and a half in a fermenter. That's it. Uh, one kind of one kind of grain, uh, barley, malted barley. That's it. Anybody can do it. You can do it in your backyard. Okay. My eighth grade science project was brewing uh, wine, and uh, the whole point was, okay, yes, we know how to brew wine, but we're going to add more and less sugar and see if we can make it stronger or weaker. So, this was eighth grade? That was eighth grade. That was <laughs> what, when did they let you back in the school? Well, after after, like, what after school they kicked you out. So, <laughs> me, Cornelius, they're out of business now. Uh, so <laughs> let me go back a little bit further. Actually, when I was about 14, I used to be the PJ master, and it was something called Purple Jesus, and it's a fruit punch. And I lived on an island, and of course all the teenagers on Saturday night would go to one end of the island, which was uninhabited. We'd drop our keys in the mailbox, and at 10 o'clock, the sheriff would come around, take the keys, lock the mailbox, and that was it. So if you were there at 10, you couldn't leave. And we pretty well policed ourselves. Nobody got pregnant, nobody got dropped, nobody, no fights got started. Um, and we used to brew this stuff called PJ, which is basically fruit punch with alcohol in it. And I, I took I'm it up. familiar a, with that. I took a notch up because I actually started to ferment it and distill it. And so I had this purple Jesus that was about 25, 26% alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad, who is a retired uh, career uh, army officer, career army officer, taught at the Citadel. And he came in one day in the garage, and I had like six 50-gallon uh, plastic trash cans fermenting in the garage. And he said, son, you know you can go to jail for this. It's called bootlegging. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, dad. <laughs> um, and but we're making so much money. <laughs> no, the theory behind brewing, and I've said this my entire life, is the reason you brew beer or you distill liquor is to guarantee it separates our women in our panties. <laughs> 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 so <laughs> that's the story of that. Um, in 2000... Uh, Where actually, we get these uh, brewing kits? And <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 1990, <laughs> I opened a brewery in uh, North Adams, Massachusetts. Uh, it was a very depressed town. Uh, I had a partner who's from that area. Um, and we just got to fun of having to brew beer. And we came up with a recipe called an Irish cream stout. Uh, we took it to one restaurant bar. Um, I think I brewed 10 barrels the first time. So you were the first ones who make an Irish cream stout? Not the first. Okay. But we had a recipe that everyone liked. Um, it sold well. People bought the hell out of it. Um, so we decided to open a brewery. Can you give us an example of like a commercialized... Irish cream stout that we have may, maybe heard of. Wow. Um, commercialized. That's hard. Like something that, that we would What's something we would a lot of people, a lot of listeners would, would have heard of? Or even give us your name. Um, it's Berkshire Brewing. They still do the recipe. Um, they've been doing it for now since 2003, so it's 17 years they've been brewing it. They brew the same recipe, though. It's pretty automatic. What, what, so what makes... What makes it a cream stout? Ah, the secret. Oh, that's the secret? <laughs> no. Okay. Um, anytime you hear anybody call a cream-finished beer, what they've done is they've added rice to the grain. Oh, okay. So rice is sweet, um, and rice adds a sugary kind of a sweetness to the grain, um, and that's what makes it cream-finished. Typically stouts, uh, when you do brewing, you use... Um, grain, and you typically rate the grain as 2-row 40, 4-row 40, chocolate, caramel, uh, dark roast. And really, that's what they do. If it's a caramel roasted grain, they've actually added caramel to it. Okay. Uh, if it's a uh, dark so, roast, they've actually charred it. So it. Yeah, so when someone had said, you know, it's caramel <laughs> roasted, I always uh, assumed it, that caramel was the color, not the flavor, that no, they actually, had a light burning to get the color. No, they actually add caramel to it. Really? Well, I it's like got to be the caramel flavor. <laughs> 
Um, but that's and you blend the different kinds of grains and the amount of grain that you use, the amount of dark grain, white grain, rice grain, and you come up with a recipe that works. Um, and uh, I had a very small, what I call the experimental still, which brewed uh, five gallons of seven gallons, roughly. We got five gallons of beer out of it. And then try to take that from five gallons to 20 barrels, not fun, because the ratios change. Right. And so there's an experimental, you have to go through multiple iterations till you get it right. And the different kinds of yeasts and the different kinds of hops and... We played around with it. I played you, around you with it. You can't just multiply across. No. Well, I can tell you from experience, like in Severin, you probably know this too, like you may have a recipe that you've cooked at home a million times, but you try to make that at the firehouse for, for 20 for, people. It doesn't come out the same. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't. The ratios yeah, are different. different. Yeah, it, yeah it, it's, it, you have to experiment with it. Um, and we actually switched, uh, we did that, and then we also did something called an export ale, which is a red ale like um, uh, Killian's, for example. Okay. So Killian's is delicious, by the way. But it's an export ale. It's a red ale. Uh, it's easy to make. Um, so, Bill, what, what's your favorite beer? Like, what is Bill Besser drinking these days? Like, what, what's his everyday go-to? Like, I know Thomas has an everyday carry. What's an everyday <laughs> beer for you, Bill Besser? Um, either a Smith's Swiss ale. Smithics. Smithics, which is uh, amber ale. It's a typical Irish ale. That's your uh, go-to? Or... Um, Guinness. I'm a Guinness guy. I like Guinness I've been a Guinness too. guy I, I, I since I was... I, we were talking about this uh, on our last podcast with me and Tony. There are places that have really good Guinness, and there are places <laughs> that have... Bad Guinness. That, you know... That, yeah. Probably the places with the what's, bad what's Guinness the stinking, What's making that distinction between the good Guinness and bad Guinness? Because I see that they're still pouring it from a tap, but for whatever reason, one is shitty, and the other was so delicious. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> uh, Lines. I really think it. Guinness is Guinness, and Guinness is brewed one way. Um, a lot of places will substitute uh, carbon dioxide for the nitrogen. Really, that's probably it. That's got to be that. It. that it because nitrogen is more expensive. Okay, um, they have to have nitrogen in order to sell Guinness. Now, is there any way we can tell? The difference when we go into these places, you or can we look just at say the, no. You can look at the head. Okay, uh, if you look More at the head, head is the, no, no. If the head is uh, uh, finer, it's nitrogen. If it's grainier, it's uh, when you say finer and grainier, you're talking about the size of the bubble. Size of the bubble. You should be able to float a bottle cap on it, right? Yeah, I'm doing that. And also time. the bartender. I've watched. I've watched Tony. I mean, I've been going to Harrigan's for four years. <laughs> he pours a good good Guinness. Uh, teaching somebody how to pour Guinness is not easy because they rush it. And when they rush it, it doesn't, the, right. you don't have that flavor that develops. Now, when I was bartending, I was able to put the clover on top. You do that? I know. I'm sure you can draw a few other things on there. I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard. I actually have, uh, you know, uh, but. Um, Throw a phone number on top? It, no, because it, 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 <laughs> you, on you only have a certain amount. Because no. No, when you, you start putting a, the clover yeah, on there, yeah. you, you you know, you, you only well, Guinness have... now is actually burning your picture in it. They actually burned your picture into the foam. Get out of here. Using a laser. Really? Yeah. Man. Now... That's just, it's been a long time since I barked at it. Now, I always got to tell a hometown story, and this is, again, a Cleveland story. Sorry, Chicago. But um, it's, a, it's a bar. We'll it's a chain it. of we'll bars. We'll edit this out. Well, yeah, just get rid of this part. <laughs> just, just don't, don't even think I said that. Cut it out. But it's, it, there's a... Um, 
chain of bars called Wink and Lizard. And at those bars, they specialize in making different, um, like black and tan, but they make it with different. So they have like a blue and tan. So they use Guinness and um, Labatt. Yeah, Labatt. Um, that's got to be a, you. That's got to make your skin crawl, right? Like as a brewer, like um, mixing Labatt with that. That does that irk you? I I like beer, so I don't drink black and tans. Um, I really like the taste of beer. I like tasting the beer as the as the brewer decided he liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Western Michigan, because of the uh, infusion and the explosion of breweries, or I mean, ten thousand breweries, they all do IPAs. Easy to do an IPA. I could do it in my bathtub. Doesn't make it a good IPA. I know. Is it over? Is the IPA thing over? The IPA, yes? the IPA is officially dead. Thank God. It, 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 oh, is? it is dead. <laughs> yes. It is. I it thought is. it was still going. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's, dead. it's gone. It's been like no. 15 years. Oh my god. Everybody likes a session beer. I want to be able to go in a brewery and drink from four o'clock in the afternoon to two o'clock in the morning when they close. I can't do that if I drink IPA. If you no, drink two IPA. or three and you're done. You're done. It, it, it's yeah, it's just ridiculous. Bitter. Well, Severin, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Like, oh, so, no, it's, so, it's fine. So you were mixing up these these beers that were, have no business being together. Yes, and right. I just want to know, was that a thing anywhere else? Because they had, like, Christmas is, is, is around Christmas time. A lot of Christmas sales are out. So they have a Black Christmas. They I, have... I, I go into a bar, and the first thing they're doing is taking a really good aged whiskey and then smoking it. <laughs> and I'm going, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm smoking the whiskey. Why? Well, because it, it, it makes smoked whiskey. And I said, well, you know the distiller who brewed that or distilled it? Actually liked the flavor of the whiskey as it is. <laughs> so what are you adding to it? And he, of course, the, the people who own the bar gets very offended by that. It's the same thing with beers. They ate, they'll smoke a beer. Why? Uh, if you're going to smoke, smoke the grain, right? Don't smoke the beer. Smoke, smoke it before it gets there. Right. You know, and I do know a guy who does a smoke porter, um, and he does a very good job of it because he smokes the grain. So you actually get that smoke. You get that smoky flavor into the, into the taste. But it's like, why, why change that? Uh, I like cocktails. I understand cocktails and coctologists. And cocktologists, yes. What they yes. Have no, I have no comment. Yes. If That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I understand the need to be creative, and I like creativity. But if I'm going to drink whiskey, I like to taste the whiskey. Pour it over a glass of, uh, you know, a solid ice cube. And I can sit there, sit. Well, we, we found out what's your everyday beer. What about your everyday whiskey? Uh, what do you? What's your back, as they say in Temple the bar industry? What is it? Templeton, Templeton Rye. I like rye Ooh, whiskey. There's a prohibition uh, bottle of Templeton Rye that is in my top five. Yeah, that's a six-year yeah. Yeah. What, okay, so ex- since we're on that topic, explain what makes something a rye. Uh, they use rye grain. So instead it's of grain barley. instead of... It's just pure rye, uh, rye grain instead of barley. Uh, rye is, doesn't produce as much sugar, um, so you need to use more of it to get the alcohol content up, and they use a different yeast. Yeah, I, I just, within the last couple of years, started to come around to the rye. Because um, and it was that Templeton um, Prohibition series. Yeah, Templeton uh, Mickelson's, uh, which is or Mickelson's, which is actually from Kentucky, is real good. Um, it's a small batch, uh, and I like the small batches. I try to stay away from like you don't the like small batches anything. Huh? You don't like small batches. I love small batches anything. Okay. I kind of stay away from the Jack Daniels and the Jim Beams because it's a it's mass produced. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, people. I I, I tell people. 
you know, when I started bartending, I started getting into scotches and whiskeys. And when I first started going down that road, uh, old salty bartender that, you know, trained me how to be a bartender said, there's no going back. You know, like I, I could never sit down and drink what we're drinking. I couldn't have a glass of Jack Daniels right now. And the same thing that I can't drink Johnny Walker, whether it's the blue, the black label, the most expensive, I can't drink Johnny Walker. It just, it, it's not appealing to me. And I don't know if I've just become a real snob. You're a snob. That's what I was saying. <laughs> well, we were all thinking I, I, inside I, of my mouth, know, right? We were all thinking. No, I think I as you grow older, your palate gets better. Either. No, I think your palate gets better because you're not binge drinking. You're not going out with a bunch of guys and just throwing, ah, throwing bourbons throwing down. Back, I, I right? like how certain whiskeys taste. And you know what I've really gotten into now, and I want your opinion on it, but I have really become a huge fan of Japanese whiskeys. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Like they kind of came out of nowhere, right? Um, With this Japanese they didn't really whiskey. come out of nowhere. They've been doing it for a lot of years. Uh, in fact, uh, if you talk to like Woodford or uh, uh, Barton's, which is a small batch, they ship seventy-five percent of their uh, product to Japan. Seventy-five percent. Yes, because the money is there. Oh, they'll pay anything. Yeah. Um, when That's what uh, I've heard too. Uh, God bless capitalism. <laughs> when Woodford Reserve came out with their double oaked, um, and the double oaked is uh, four years in a, a charred barrel and two years in a raw oak barrel. It's super smooth. You can sit there and drink it like water all night long. There's no aftertaste, no bitterness, everything else. They did a release party in, oh, let me think here. So 2010, they did it in April 2010. Uh, and because it's in Kentucky, they did it at the um, at a dinner train. And it's a five-star, it's a, actually a five-star restaurant. You go in, you sit down, uh, they take you out on an old uh, Pullman dining car with the white linen and the china and everything else. And you actually go past all the Jim Beam distilleries <laughs> as you go out. It's in Bardstown, Kentucky. And um, Woodford actually did the release party. So they did, they introduced the liquor and they gave everyone two drinks and Fortunately, the woman who I was with, my date, didn't drink. So I got her, her all her drinks. So she didn't, she didn't last very long then, she, huh? did she? Yeah, and then I got a free bottle of it. Yeah, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so but it, was a, it was a really nice time. But I was talking to the sales guy, and he said, um, you can't buy it because we ship everything overseas. It just was impossible. Well, the, what I noticed about, and maybe you can speak to this, when I drink the Japanese whiskeys, um, well, when I drink like Irish whiskeys or scotches, there's, I don't know how to describe it. It's more complicated flavor. There's more going on. When you take a sip of it, you, you can taste like different things in there. When I drink the Japanese whiskeys, it's very straightforward. There's not much of the, that bite, that aftertaste. There's not, once it's gone, it's gone. And is it because of the way it's made or the ingredients? What, it's the ingredients. Is it's it the ingredients? Great. To grain, because you know how like you you talked about earlier that you know let this go and you know it's gonna f- pass front the front of your tongue, of your tongue to the then back, it's gonna go yeah. to the back and you're gonna hit. The, there's not there's not really that much of that going on with the Japanese whiskey. No, and uh, the the Japanese learns Japanese learns very quickly, and and their beers are excellent by the way. I don't know if you drank yes. Asahi or Kira. Oh, yes. Their beers are right. excellent. Um, the a lot of the beers in Japan they don't have grain over there, so they have to import grain. Um, there's just not enough land. <laughs> I mean, uh, they have rice, but 
Um, and uh, they use rice a lot. So a lot of their beers are actually have rice in it, and that's the cream finish. They don't call it cream so finish, but cream. it has a cream. Cream, yeah. cream ale. Learn something. We, <laughs> we got all to use it. about the cream today. <laughs> but it's really but what the, they do. Their beer is more Pilsners, aren't they? Their beers are more Pilsners. Yeah, they're, um, uh, David, I think they're the largest consumer of Carlsberg in Asia. Really? No kidding. Yeah. But a Pilsner, uh, okay, so to brew an IPA is one and a half days in a fermenter. To brew a Pilsner um, is... 90 to 120 days wow. in a fermenter. And you have to keep the temperature at 45 degrees. Um, so use a different yeast. So the it's yeast a longer process to make a Pilsner than an IPA? Yes. And so the IPA yeast costs a lot more than the Pilsner. I thought it would be right. the, uh, the, the opposite. Pils- because of the yeast. The yeast has to be a oh, slower it's yeast. Marketing. Uh, an IPA, you it's use marketing. 60 degrees. Uh, and a Pilsner, you can't go above 45. You go to 50 degrees, the, the yeast dies. So it's a much longer process. It's a much longer commitment. You're tying up a fermenter for four months. Same ingredients. Same hops, different hops. You're going to use use preservation hops, so you're going to use different flavoring hops. Let me ask you a question about um, Vince and I were arguing. Not arguing, but we were discussing last (laughs) week. We never argue, Thomas. No, no, we we weren't (laughs) arguing, but he was basically saying, take this garbage and go. Uh, (laughs) 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 We were talking about... um, I, I saw the, his bottle of Screwball whiskey, and Screwball whiskey is, uh, it tastes like, just take a spoonful of peanut butter, shove it in your mouth, and that's what the whiskey tastes like. And he said, and, and I agree with him to a, to a point, he said, well, I, just on principle alone, I can't drink it because, you know, it, you bastardized the whiskey. And I said, but it tastes like peanut butter. So I, I'm really <laughs> interested in what your opinion is, because for me, I, I love it. I know, yes, it's whiskey, and they put sugar and all this other flavoring in, but it tastes like peanut butter. Okay, so whiskey for a long time has not been favored with women. They'll either go with the rums or they'll go with the... Uh, um, vodka. Vodka or something clear. Um, whiskey mm. has made a huge comeback in the United States, primarily for a couple of reasons. One, just the lowest calories. It's the lowest sugar of any, any liquor out there, including vodka, rum... Rum is all sugar. It's good so. for your health. People drink up. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, there, are, there are some manufacturers have gotten, how do I want to put it, cutesy with it because you're dealing with people who like cutesy things. Well, it's also taking, basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to take over the uh, the fireball spot. Sure. That's what they're doing. The fireball is cinnamon, and I can't do that. But that's exactly, it's just it's the, it's same. the same. It's it the same idea. Ne- basically, it doesn't have to be necessarily be whiskey. It's just, it tastes good. It's got alcohol in it. Ooh, it's got the party started. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're just fighting for I a look around here, market, I don't, right? I, most, I would say, guess most of your ages are in the 30s and 40s. Um, I'm in my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lie. Okay. I, I know I'm the oldest person here. You don't. Are you qualify. over fifty-two? Um, but <laughs> the young generation today has no brand loyalty. They'll tomorrow they'll drink a a, a claw, whatever that stuff is, that nasty <laughs> white salsa claw. Water. No law with the claw. Pre-party. <laughs> yeah, they'll drink that, and then the next day they'll drink Irish whiskey because, or an Irish coffee because they saw it at the bar and it looked good. They followed the trend. It, it's whatever the trend is, and it's just you know X today, Y tomorrow. Um, and everybody wants, and that generation wants instant gratification. It's not about working for something. It's I want it now. Um, the other generations have been brand loyal. Uh, I drink one kind of whiskey. I like it. I stick with it because I know what the taste is going to be. I know it's going to be consistent. That's changed in the industry, in the bar industry especially. 
Um, and I think that's now the, the pendulum is going the other way. Um, even at Harrigan's, uh, you notice some people coming in, uh, they drank the same thing every time. So you think that people have experimented so much following the trends that they actually like, I really like this and I really like that and I'm just going to stick with it. Yeah, because they get tired. I mean, it's... Sure. I'm sorry, peanut butter just doesn't do much well, for plus, me. I love it. 15 <laughs> of those shots, how is your body going to feel the next day? Oh, right? I feel like <laughs> crap the next day, but the night I'm drinking it, I absolutely love it. While you're on the ride, you're, you're having fun, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Until the ride stops, and then it's like, uh, <laughs> in a spinning. So are we up for bottle number three? Uh, by the way, I want to just mention before we get to bottle number three, that slain was that slain very was, smooth. That was very smooth. I didn't get a chance to write all the way to describe it. I said the other <laughs> one felt like a handshake. This one felt more like a arm around your shoulder. <laughs> there you go. Ah, oh, if only you guys could see. So yeah, I, I will tell you that, like. and, and Tony can vouch for this because he's been part of a number of contests with slain. Um, we've done a couple experiments here just recently for Irish coffees. It is a perfect blend of whiskey that you can do multiple things with because of its sherry. Uh, and I will tell you that Irish coffees are great, coffees but with? if you take dark chocolate and throw a shot of slain in it, the slain, the chocolate and the uh, sherry notes just Wait, highlight you, each when other. When you say chocolate, you, chocolate you mean like a chocolate your... liqueur? Or no, or like chocolate, a hot, hot chocolate. Oh, like hot, hot chocolate. chocolate. Yeah, get some marshmallows in there. Get out, for real? Is that how oh, you no, put your kids yeah. to sleep? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 don't know, I don't know where the kids are. <laughs> uh, I have a, a, a female friend who comes over to the house. She doesn't like coffee. Um, you, so you know women that don't like booze, and you know women that don't like coffee. That's suspect. Yeah. He knows a lot of women. Those are just okay. two. Well, I, I stand corrected. Yeah. I'm very sorry. Um, but I did take a hot chocolate. I have this Godiva hot uh, the Godiva cocoa. It's, it's a dark chocolate. It goes in a curd. Uh, you pop the curd cup in, you throw a shot of swain in it, or an ounce of swain, and the sherry and the chocolate just blend. And she was sitting there going, oh my God, this is great. And about six later, she was going like, how many of these have I had? And I said, you don't want to know. And that's when you did your other thing. You separated her. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, there's a perfect Ladies example how red. you wouldn't think like, you know, like what Tom was saying was the, the peanut butter and the whiskey you wouldn't think about that, but if you're, if the cocoa and the 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 sherry and the slain manage to get together and are delicious, then I guess there really are no rules. There are no rules. And, well, that's what I was going to say. There. Are, that's I mean, what if Severin's mixing Labatt and Guinness <laughs> together, then there are no rules. Call, <laughs> calling it a black and orange. Or, <laughs> I, Is that what it's called? <laughs> I don't remember, honestly, <laughs> no, it was, but it's just whatever, whatever the fl- summer shant, black, everything is black just in front. Black so, summer, black shandy. When black it starts with Guinness, so, right? I, when it starts with the okay. Guinness, yeah. So as a master brewer and working in multiple breweries, um, I absolutely refuse to do a fruit beer. Sorry. I don't do wheat beers either. Don't, don't apologize. They're horrible. Um, uh, the owner of the brewery has this recipe. It's for something called, it's a strawberry ale. He does it for the women in the summer. Um, I got stuck with brewing it because I was the assistant brewer. Have you ever tried grinding 400 pounds of frozen strawberries and try to get them into a fermenter? Do I have to answer that question? No. (laughs) Uh, 12 hours later, (laughs) I've had enough of this. Uh, We brewed uh, 20 barrels of it. The guys that drank it was actually all the guys that drank it. Yeah. I well, couldn't I mean, taste the strawberry. It, it wasn't light. 
But anyway, uh, so I don't do fruit beers. I absolutely refuse to do it. For and I have a quick question. You went to Germany to be the master brewer. I thought Germany was like the plate, the land of the wheat beers and like the hyphen Weissen. And, and so you didn't didn't catch a taste for those over there? Um, I had to brew them in order to be a master brewer. I had to learn about them. I don't like wheat. Okay. Uh, and I'll, the, the reason is is simply this. Number one, when you do a wheat beer, you leave the grain in the beer. You don't filter it. So if you drink a traditional wheat beer, it's like sucking on the end of a pine cone. Okay. <laughs> well, that's why it has It's that, high fiber. That's why you I mean, can't you see through it. And it's, it's thick, right? Or like it, it seems like it's unfiltered. It, it you, is unfiltered. You you you're getting you the raw grain. There's no clarity to it. There's right? no clarity to the beer. I hate that. Uh, I like filtered beer. I, <laughs> like, I mean, that's the whole reason I look at a beer. and You can look at the quality and you put it up to the light. And you can see, see through it. it. You, it's that... You see golden. See yeah. gold when you look through it. The right beer. The right. So um, to me, that's I, th that's the beers I like. So I did learn how to make them, but I just don't do them. Okay. Um, but I also learned the Dortmunder style, which is the darker beers, which are the Pilsners, the mm -hmm. dark Pilsners. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. they also drink, uh, I mean, they drink uh, ales. They actually make ales over there as well. But what I did learn is I learned about the process of brewing and what hops do and uh, how you do flavoring hops and what you do what kind of yeasts and the different kinds of yeasts so for an ipa uh you use typically um challenger yeast okay uh, or challenge uh, when you do a, a pilsner you use a different kind of yeast and different kind of hops so that's what you learn and then you learn to experiment well it, did you learn about the history of the ipa how the british would put these on the ships and like for them to drink on their journeys like yeah and that's called preservation hops and the more you put in the longer the beer lasts and, and that's how ipas it became an indian pale because the british troops were on would take these on the boats on their way to india right, right? The, and, same thing with an export ale uh, so killian's is actually an export ale they call it an export ale um it has a high hop content uh it has a bitterness unit of about it's called ibus about 135, uh, but it's a red ale, and it'll last forever because it's got a high high hop cap to it. So that that's why it's got that hoppiness, just because it, it's taste. meant for travel. It's meant for travel. Okay. Meant for travel. I like well, that. I I went to uh, when I was in my 20s. I went to Amsterdam, and oh, yeah. uh, what were you doing there? <laughs> that's <laughs> none of your business. It's <laughs> none of your business. It's legal now. It's okay. He's, well, in the but, he's going to the museum. <laughs> But one of the, one of the things that really blew me out of the water was I went to I drank Heineken and I drank Amstel, which here you know doesn't really appeal to me. But over there, it was the most delicious beer. And a bartender there was explaining to me that they have different purity laws there in Amsterdam than we do here in America. So when we, you know, he was basically saying we bastardize. bastardize their beer to make to conform to our laws here and it changes the entire profile of that sure. beer but yeah. it was so delicious and it was flavorful and you know they serve it in little glasses you don't get a big you know 12 ounce glass of have beer. you ever had orange city beer? orange city iron. iron city it's from Pittsburgh. Uh, yes oh you that's fish city it? okay no it's the lead content in the water is so high that's what makes the beer i have had iron city 
So you'll go blind drinking it, but you'll enjoy doing <laughs> you'll enjoy it. it. Right. You'll be the happiest blind guy on the block. Uh, Schmidt's beer, same thing in Pennsylvania. Any of the local breweries, uh, they use uh, they use local. Uh, the one that's now going national, I can't. Yangling. 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 Yeah. Yangling is the same thing. They get the water out of the Reading River. It's whatever's in the Reading River that makes the beer. Yeah. If they tried to take it and move it somewhere else, it wouldn't work. And it's not. It's not everywhere. You got to go to the right place. Well, that's the same thing. Wisconsin. What's the um Wisconsin beer? Um, Rhinelander. <laughs> no, oh, it's not. Uh, no, not Line of Kugel. The other one. I've got, I've got a case of it in my fridge. The, the one that they only sell in Oh, Wisconsin? you're talking about the oh, Nuglaris uh, style? Nuglaris. Like uh, yes. Spotted Cow? Yeah, yes. Spotted Cow. That stuff is delicious. Yes. It is. Uh, Nuclearis is a microbrewery. Um, they do very well. Uh, and the reason they don't sell anywhere else, uh, they don't want to. Volume. Well, <laughs> don't, don't forget, remember to, when um, uh, Fat Tire wasn't sold on this side of Mississippi River? They said they were, so were not going to do it. So one of the best breweries in Michigan... Uh, is a thing called Bastone. You won't, because okay. he doesn't bottle it. He doesn't go to competitions. Uh, it's Belgian beer. It's one of the best Belgian breweries in the country. He's a chef. He owns a restaurant in, uh, oh, what's the hell the name? Uh, Oak Park, uh, outside Detroit. It's a suburb. He owns a restaurant. He pairs his beer with his food. It is the best Belgian beer I've ever had. Road trip. <laughs> I've had people from Belgium come over and drink there and it's going, oh my God, I'm at home. And he's arrogant. <laughs> he's just, I refused. He doesn't want to play by the rules. He doesn't play by anybody's rules. He doesn't compete, but he has the best beer. Sounds like my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You don't strike me as too but, arrogant. No, no, but, not the arrogant. But he's, just a, but he don't just, play by the rules. But he part. just doesn't want to play with the brewers. And he just says, hey, I brew beer because I enjoy it. I'm from Belgium. And he does. He has a very traditional, uh, the, 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 triple, the, the triple beer. It's just, it's, it's to die for. Just refuses to go anywhere with it. He sells it out of his brewery. You can buy bottles of it there, but that's about it. Or, uh, really? Jugs. Growlers. Growlers. Um, let's, uh, you know who hasn't spoken too much uh, so far in this podcast is you, Tony. Tony, yeah. Um, what's been going on, man? Um, what's been uh, going not on much. Since, the bars uh, are still podcast. closed. We're getting ready to uh, open up, hopefully, around April. Yeah. It's going to be a party. The Roaring Twenties are almost here. <laughs> is, I can, is, I can is, see Is that now. what you guys think it's going to be like, the Roaring Twenties? Yes. Oh, yeah. Anybody under 30, they don't. Basically, when I moved here first, I was always like, oh, it's a snowstorm. Well, should we go out? And all my friends are like 22, 23. Like, yeah, don't worry about that. Let's go. So basically, <laughs> it's like that. It's like a big snowstorm. Yeah. So uh, I'm very I'm looking forward to it. I got to tell you, many of the bars around me have stayed open, have not closed. I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard some of the places um, have stayed open. I'll give you addresses. After <laughs> <the show. laughs> Look at Steve just stirring the pot over there. Yeah. All right. Well, well let's move you know, in. You want to move into number three? Or yeah. You, you know, Harrigan's is closed, and it used to be my favorite bar. Yeah. Uh, it's only four blocks from my house. Um, so I have found one other place that we go drink. It's not really a bar, but it's a restaurant. Um, and we sit outside. An Irishman in, in, in a, a restaurant. There's, some, there's, yeah, there's something, something really wrong with, wrong with society. Can I ask you, know? you a serious question, though? How yes, has sir. the closure really seriously affected you? Um, it's just, uh, it's been a humbling experience. and uh, It's hard to have no income for nine um, A lot of my bartender guys, I, you know, they kind of did, weren't worried about it initially. They were like, oh, it'll be fine. They're like smoking weed and drinking every day. And now they're like running out of money. And they're like, oh, I probably should have done something else. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I'm currently working in the exciting world of retail, minimum wage retail right oh, now. Sure. Doing that. I'm doing a little deliveries. 
It's uh, there's work out there. It's not the most glamorous. Hold, hold on one second. Pour on the mic. Pour on the mic. Let them hear. There we go. Can you hear that? Yeah. So you're you're coping, but this is not what you yeah. want to do. You're just uh, getting by. Not so much, but it's all right. You know what? The great thing is that the millennials don't want to work, so there's always going to be <laughs> all the minimum wage jobs are always going to be available. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's not a that's not a lie. I'm better than this. I don't need to, I don't need to work here. You know. <laughs> Right. So what do we uh, what okay, do we drink so now? It, this is uh, us through this one. This is a pot still, but it has been aged for twelve years in barrels, which is an exorbitant amount of time for. It this, is right? <laughs> yes. Should I say the youngest whiskey in the blend is twelve years? Yeah. Okay, so we could have something that's like a twenty year in there, but it's the minimum. Is twelve years, which is pretty ridiculous. Pretty ridiculous. Yeah, for for beer. All right. I mean, for whiskey. So However, it, so don't don't tell us don't tell us anything about it. Let's take a smell, and you guys tell me what what you think we got going on. It, now, for it, me, this is the first Irish whiskey I was introduced to. I had Red Breast before. Red Breast um, is my is one of my favorites. I shouldn't say it is my absolute favorite, but it's one of my favorites. And I was introduced um, to this by a very good fireman buddy that I have. And he said, oh, get this red breast. It's better than any of that other crap you've been drinking any time in your life. And he was not lying. So every time I go somewhere and I see this, this is the first thing I order as I go to the red breast. Well, what I noticed right away is that it smells stronger than the slain. It's got more, like, alcoholic smell than the slain. Uh, what what makes that? What gives it that aroma? Um, <clears throat> you're taking the impurities out of the alcohol, but you're just allowing the alcohol to come out. So this is just all alcohol, I'm saying. Yes. All right, so, all right. The longer you age alcohol, the actual higher the content of the alcohol comes You would out. think that it would be the opposite, right? Because doesn't alcohol Cause evaporate fast? The water gets absorbed. The water evaporates. The alcohol becomes stronger. So to take, um, for example, bourbon, uh, that's a 100-year-old bourbon, um, you're going from 80 proof to over 100 proof. <laughs> All right, well, let's give this a, a whack. It's, so I know you said uh, slaying was your favorite, and I, I was a little prejudiced, but the red breast is my favorite because I, still your I favorite. just like it. Yeah, it's it, a, it, Slain is smoother, but the the this has more character. I, I feel. think it's more traditional what you would expect of in a, a whiskey. whiskey. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But this is pure whiskey. I mean, it, it's good. Absolutely, this is pure whiskey in charcoal aged barrels. This is That's for it. more when you want to taste the whiskey more. This is gives no, you but more they do have sher- they do also use sherry for the tour, for the red breast. Yes. Yeah. Well, that I was about to say, you can still, you still smell that, that sweetness. Yeah, that sweet. Yeah, and, and you, you can't see because obviously no camera, but I actually opened the slain and I was smelling the two back and forth. And uh, definitely the slain smells a slight bit sweeter. Um, this smells much better than the, um, what is it, teeling. teeling. <laughs> it smells much better than the teeling. I've been calling it bathtub all night, but I, it wasn't bad. I don't want to so say No, better. I liked it. Yeah. In I, regards I of price-wise, how does this compare to slain or teeling? The bread breast is 80? Really? The longer Slain something is, is aged, this guy, this guy know he knows. <laughs> the longer something is aged, the higher the cost because the longer the distiller cannot make money. Well, real estate costs money. 
You you got the big warehouses full of barrels so, where real estate costs money. You know, when when you talk about starting a distillery, uh, and I actually did this because I own a distillery. It's called Stone Creek. Um, the initial cost is you make a product, and for a minimum of four years, you can't sell it. Got to keep it somewhere. It's just stored. It's in a warehouse, aged. So literally, you start a business, you're going to spend, if you do a good job of it, about a uh, million dollars in equipment. Up front, uh, before you even make, before you even start making product, you're a million dollars. You're a million dollars into it. And you're talking just equipment and, uh, you know, Facilities, buildings and right. A million dollars. That and sounds like Fire years. and Iron Media Company. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, these parallels are just so mind for, blowing. For four years, you're just actually putting money in. You don't get any money out. Um, minimum four years. If you're going to do a really good product, six to eight. And you want to, I would assume, you know, you're going to keep producing product for those four years while your first batch is sitting there waiting to be sold. Yeah, so that means more barrels and more storage, more barrels. And more more money on equipment, uh, maintenance, and more money on So uh, it's got to be, if you start a distillery, it's got to be 10 years before you really turn out a profit. Uh, It is. So you're looking at a 10 million, you're looking at a 10-year investment before you see any return at all. And then you make... Drop the, the butt yeah. right. Well, then you make so much that you start throwing away sherry after a while too. Yeah, so, right. I don't. Feel if you sorry. use sherry, if uh, you use sherry, <laughs> if you use sherry. Well, uh, if you guys don't mind, I I want to. This is we haven't done this on any podcast, and I want to do it since you know uh, we're all here together. But I kind of wanted to put Bill on the microphone and yes, kind of get a little background on Bill because Bill has here, been the guy not? behind the scenes. Every podcast that you hear. Um, Bill's edited and put his two cents, and we really couldn't be here without him. So, Bill, number one, what do you think? Come over here. As a sound engineer, you should know you need to talk. To yeah, the mic, you got to talk to the mic, Bill. <laughs> Come on. So the whole t- show he's so been holding the mics first for of us. All, tell, give us a little background because people always want to know about Bill, the guy behind the scenes. <laughs> uh, just a short answer, Bill. And where are you from, Bill? I'm from Mongolia. Uh, Moved here in the United States, like, it's been almost three years. And for Chicago, it's been a year and a half. And I'm a sound engineer. Yeah, shortly. Like, what kind of music do you do? Uh, for music here, uh, mostly the, you know, the Chicago going rappers come at the studio for the recording sessions. Yeah, rapper. What? Yeah, younger guys. Uh, mostly, I guess they're from the south side, and uh, for me, I do a DJing too. And, uh, and you also mo- have a podcast. Yeah. But it's only in Mongolia. Right? Yeah, and next year on January we're starting a English podcast, and our uh, I'm proudly saying that uh, our very first guest is Vince. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Suck up. <laughs> I'm really excited for that. I am excited too. Yeah. So, uh, what do you, what do you think of what do you think of uh, whis- Do you drink whiskey in Mongolia? Do they, is like what's the liquor scene in Mongolia? Do you guys drink whiskeys <laughs> and stuff like that? Yeah, that's a good 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 question because uh, I would say in Mongolia drinking is a very popular scene, and uh, firstly, most of them are 
drinking straightly their vodka. But like I would say uh, maybe last 20 years or something, maybe 10 years, the whiskey is getting more popular in the young people. They more uh, they like to drink whiskey uh, more than the vodka now. But me too, because, you know, Vodka sounds hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in Mongolia, do they grow grain? I know they grow wheat. Yeah, they they grow the the wheat. The wheat. Yeah, but uh, we don't have any Mongolian original whiskey or something. But we do have the vodka. Yeah. There's Mongolian vodka. Yeah. Yes, there is. Oh, there are like numbers of vodkas, uh, but. More like if we talk about the more traditional one, it comes from the horse milk. Horse milk? Yeah. I didn't know you could milk I thought horse. vodka was from potatoes, <laughs> to be honest. Did you know you could? Steve, did you vodka know you could be milk made horse? from any grain? <laughs> Hold on. It's, it's like meet the parents. It's like anything with nipples. You just get under there and you just start, uh, just start going to work. Well, Bill, vodka I just be made from any grain, including here. grape leaves. Thank you for uh, doing all oh. that work for us. And yes, Bill, thank you for all your hard work with all the podcasts. We do all appreciate it very much. Absolutely. All right, Bill, where where were we? Oh, we, we were talking about grape leaves. You said, yeah, leaves. hold on, let's go back to that. So you can make vodka from just about anything. So tell me the difference between because it's all just fermentation and then distillation. So what's the difference between vodka and whiskey? The grain that you use. So you're not using a grain with vodka. You're using a fruit. Well, you or can something. use a grain. You can well, use potato. potato. You can right. use potato. wheat. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it depends on where you uh, where you go. Russian vodka is typically uh, wheat. It's uh, uh, is grape vodka, right? Yeah, Soraka's grape vodka. Um, certain vo Tito's potato. Tito is very good, by the way. Tito's. Tito's yep. made from potatoes. A lot of uh, Irish. I mean, excuse me. A lot of uh, Russian vodkas is made from potatoes. Right. right. Any, I always thought it was potato until this day. Any. A vegetable because it's starch. Is that is that the what you're trying to get? Is the starch? Yeah, if the starch the turns into starch sugar base. and turn into alcohol. So it's a starch-based vegetable. Will make sugar. Vodka. Will make sugar. Right. And you take you add the yeast and it converts to alcohol. And they do their magic funky you know thing so and you get uh, have a good night you a could few do months later. Rice vodka. Would it be? Um, typically, when you do rice, um, you can make whiskey with rice only. Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, well, is that what you made? Is that sake, right? Sake. So sake. So so rice becomes whiskey, not vodka. That's correct. You're dealing with a but bunch whiskey of whiskey and here, <laughs> so, I mean, whiskey and vodka. Like children, like yeah, right. tell us more, it's Bill. Alcohol. <laughs> it's alcohol. It's whatever you want to label it. Yeah, right. Um, okay. Because the, the Koreans have soju. That's like uh, a rice soju that's a rice will mess you up. I'm not. I'm not familiar with soju. I think we need to order all the above. Do it part well, two. Travel, travel the world. <laughs> yes. You know, Bill, since we're like just bombarding you with questions, um, <laughs> this may not even be in, in your wheelhouse, but are you familiar with absence and, yes. and like the history of that? Like, can you impart some knowledge on that? Like, it, it was a hypnotic or hallucinogen, right? It is. Still, it is, still is to this day. I remember um, we, talked about we couldn't get it here. Yes. You had to <laughs> import it, or you had to find somebody who could. Travel to you know outside of the United States and bring it in, but I think now it's more of readily available, right? Um, and what about it makes gives it the hallucinogenic effect? Well, first, it's a worm. 
It's and a it's worm. worm-eating wood. Get out of here. Wormwood. It's wormwood. It's actually got it's worms. Uh, your traditional absence, you'll find a worm in the bottom. Get out of here. Um, it is a hallucinogen because it's made from, um, it's like mushrooms. You know, it's, yeah, it's a rouge. It's a rouge. To grow, it's popular in Switzerland and France, right? But you you pour it over a sugar cube because it tastes right? good. Yeah. I don't. Not that I know. Oh, because uh, of the taste? That's why you do yeah, it over the sugar? Absinthe oh, tastes like licorice. It tastes like licorice. Yeah, it yeah. And it's green. Licorice. God, I hate so you like peanut butter. <laughs> I hate licorice. Get rid of that licorice. <laughs> no, licorice um, is the devil. <laughs> I, I've seen it. I've actually had it when I was in France. I uh, lived in France for about a year. Well, I, I had it on my trip to Amsterdam, and I, I didn't feel any effect whatsoever. You got robbed? They didn't tell you about it. I, I, they didn't I, tell I, you I the effect. You got some ecto-green yeah, Kool-Aid. I, Kool-Aid. I, may have been I, other elements involved. Right. <laughs> it was competing with other things, I think. But. Um, if you drink enough of absinthe, it will drive you mad. Yeah, it's got a. It's like PCP. It's like the mushroom situation. Is that why Vincent Van Gogh cut his ear off? <laughs> no, actually, he had... Uh, Bill was there, he knows. No, <laughs> if you go back and you read the story from him, he actually was suffering from tinnitus. Uh, just oh, really? a ringing. Ear ringing. And a ringing, ringing in his, in his ear. ear. Cut off. Even when he writes in his journals, he talks about that. Man, just when we thought you only knew about... I like, told you he was you know, an encyclopedia. He's an encyclopedia. encyclopedia. All right, try, um, let, let, have, let's play this game. Let's play Stump Bill. Stump Bill. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let me give so you a little bit of background about physics. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about... <laughs> no. no. Actually, I am a, uh, I am a design engineer. Um, I work in the electronics industry. I've been doing it for 30-some years. Uh, I've designed a computer system for the 787. I've designed medical equipment, CT scans. Um washing machines. I've worked in every industry. You just make booze for fun. I do it for fun. <clears throat> um, so the booze is a, a passion project for you. It is. Uh, I became a chef because I wanted to learn how to cook, but never worked in an industry. I most likely killed a staff within the first week. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just enjoy learning and doing stuff. Um, I'm an old-timer. Um, I'm an old vet. So yeah, tell us about your uh, military career. You're a, a former Marine, correct? I'm a former Marine. I spent six years in Uncle Sam's moldy crotch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, Only you could say that. <laughs> uh, I was a helicopter pilot. I served uh, 21 months in Vietnam. Yeah, Thank I'm, you for I'm your service. So I'm actually 70 years old. No wow. kidding. Yeah. God damn. He said he's 70. I think he's a liar. You should no, be the poster so child for whiskey, Bill. Huh? You should be the poster child for whiskey. Yeah, like, most interesting man alive here. I vote right now. We need to start a petition. Right. Get, rid of, that, get rid of that guy from that other company. Uh-huh. Bill this is, is the most this interesting is your man guy. alive. I don't always drink whiskey, but when I do, sometimes it's with the most interesting man alive. <laughs> Bill uh, Besser. I've, had a, I've always had the ability in my life to go do whatever I wanted to go do. Yeah. And my dad was a 35-year career Army officer. Um, served at, uh, in the U.S. Army. He actually uh, taught at the Citadel. He taught history in uh, Russian and German. Were you a, a warrant officer then if you were a helicopter um, pilot? I got drafted. Um, I went to work for a two-star ad- a general uh, because I was a squared-away Marine and I was a corporal after six months in the Marine Corps. Um, I went to military school, so I knew all about military. I knew how to delegate. I knew how to accept responsibility. In fact, my drill instructor beat me up for it because I wasn't supposed to figure it out that early in my career. Um, I went to work for a one-star admiral, um, 
in electronics because I had got drafted out of college and I wanted to go back in electronics. And he said, well, you can fly airplanes. Why can't you fly helicopters? And I said, because I've not been trained. So he sent me to... Were you the, the, the brigadier's aide at that time? Um, this was after I got actually transferred into a liaison position for okay. Naval Electronics. I worked for a one-star admiral in Patuxent River, Maryland. He said, <clears throat> if you can fly civilian airplanes, you need to fly helicopters because we couldn't get pilots. Everyone was being sent to Vietnam. So he sent me to transition school in Memphis, and I became a helicopter pilot. Um, I was an E-5 in the Marine Corps at the time. Um, Explain what E-5 means to us civilians. Sergeant. Uh, what's the rank five? Um, I got back to uh, Patuxent River, and the Marine Corps and the Pentagon goes, well, we have a helicopter pilot in Patuxent River, Maryland. He's an enlisted man. How was that possible? Because you can't be a pilot unless you're an officer. So during Vietnam, they had something called LDL, which was limited duty officer. So I got promoted to a first lieutenant <clears throat> as an you, LDL. You got promoted from an L5 or an E5 to a first lieutenant. First but, lieutenant. Uh, it, so my officer rank tracked my enlisted rank. It was called a limited duty officer. They did this during wartime. Same thing in World War II. They did the same thing. I mean, that's like a 20-year track that you just <laughs> yeah. jumped. Um, and then, of course, somebody in the Pentagon goes, why do we have a helicopter pilot in Patuxent River, Maryland? He needs to be in Vietnam. <laughs> so I went to Vietnam. <laughs> well, I guess it's got its upsides. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They gave you the, uh, I got good um, news and bad news. <laughs> yeah, so uh, when I got, got out of Vietnam, I went back to Patuxent River and I did uh, experimental uh, landing systems for helicopters, which was the electronics part of it. And I was going to college at the same time. Um, and I got out of the Marine Corps, and I had an opportunity to go to the same job I had in the Marine Corps just from a, on the other side of the office because— Well, 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 well but you skipped over the whole Vietnam part. Like, I think you did that on purpose. Did you do that on purpose? Because, um, like, I, like, No, my job was to do uh, insertions and removals. I flew a CH-46. Um, the Chinook. Yeah, the, okay. but the Marine Corps Chinook with the single, single landing gear. Um, my job was to put troops in and get them out. And I was one of those crazy bastards that got him out. What was your call sign as a pilot? Uh, No call sign. No call sign? Marine Mm -hmm. didn't do that? No. We actually flew A-teams, which was Army, Marine, uh, Vietnamese, um, and Mountain Yards. What's Mountain Yards? Mountain Yards. They were the village people. Oh. They were those crazy bastards you hear about that would, you could be standing next to one of them and blink. And they weren't there, and you didn't know where they went. They were ninjas. <laughs> they were the they were the locals. They were the and, locals, and, and they, they were would badass. work with like they were the indigenous forces. Yeah, that, and the, that, yeah, that they were just US great. Troops would work with. And if you listened to them, you survived. If you didn't listen to them, you died. I learned that very quickly. If they said don't land here, we didn't land there. For even though the officer was like. Well, we were told to land there. No, no, you don't understand. He said, "Don't land there. We're not landing." He's there. from here. He knows the he knows and, the neighborhood. You listen to him. Yeah. And so traditionally, mountain yards are like tiny, tiny men. Yeah, they're like, they're like five five. Yeah, yeah, but they're just don't ever want to screw oh, them. They, they get after it. Um, but I was a crazy bastard that went in and got an A team, no matter where they were, and got shot down twice. <laughs> uh, it was a prisoner of war for uh, eighteen hours. No kidding. Yeah, I got shot That's down. a whole podcast. I, right. I, wow. See, this wow. is, I had to bring him back to this. He just like skipped yeah, this part. Sk- I told you um, it was on purpose. No, um, I, I had a job to do. And my job was, uh, as a Marine, 
um, was to get people in and get them out. And whatever it took to get them out, we got them out. There was just nobody ever left behind. That was a job. It was an attitude. And in the Vietnam War, that wasn't what they wanted you to do. Okay, it was all political. Some general in Pentagon say, we're going to go here. And you look at local intelligence and go, no, you don't want to go there. Uh, Viet Cong division. So why are we going there? Um, and it was very, it, it was just, it was like local intelligence was totally ignored. And you had a bunch of young officers who had no concept what they were doing. You know, they're out of OCS, they're there, they don't listen to the locals, they don't listen to the, the people who had the most experience. You've got a guy who's been there for a year, uh, for two years, or on a second tour who's an, an enlisted man, a senior enlisted guy. He's he survived two right. tours. Survive, Pay attention. Yes, yeah. yeah. you survive on, on. It's not a matter of chance. It's it's, uh, it's skill. Yeah. Pay attention, know. and they just didn't. And I had a commanding officer who just him and I didn't see eye to eye because I would do things that he didn't approve of, and we went places we weren't supposed to be. But if the A team was there, we went and got him out. And we developed tactics uh, that is used today to get to get a helicopter in quietly. Stall your helicopter, drop, land, count 30, get off. I mean, if not everybody's on on 30, too bad. Uh, but the A-teams loved it because they knew if they were in trouble, we would go get them. Um, and I made a lot of friends there. And I have friends that to this day, I, I got a guy out, um, and this was in uh, late 72. And I actually uh, started working with him in the early 80s. He was an engineer. And he remembered me. I had no idea who it was. He says, I You guys just found each other randomly? Yeah, we Get worked out. in the same company. But he remembered my name. And he said, you got me out. And he remembered where I got out. And we, get, out er, we meet every year and just go get drunk. <laughs> get the fuck out. That's awesome. What are the odds of that? That's awesome. Yeah. So, but you make good friends. You make good friends. You see a lot of people die because of stupidity. That's what it is. That's what it is. Um, now, did you have the, what everybody remembers has the welcoming that you guys got coming home, was it as brutal as it's been depicted in history? You guys coming home and you guys, you know, being spat on yes. and, un, you know, unrecognized. And um, was it really as bad as it's oh, been yes. depicted in history? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. What got me through it, and, and we talk about PTSD today, is my dad was a, you know, a, a, a veteran from World War II. Uh, he helped me through it a great deal. Um, during the Gulf War, which is the first war after that, uh, all us Vietnam veterans said, we're not going to allow this to happen. Uh, we're the ones that organized the, you know, the welcome home parties, the gift packs, uh, when a death, uh, death occurred, the motorcycle, you know, events, the bugler and everything else. Um, so we agreed as Vietnam veterans, cause we weren't recognized. In fact, I could not join an American Legion. Right, because it's not an official war. It's a policing action. Now they've changed and, and that's, that. Yeah, it's a complete manure, and yeah, you're right. They have changed. That's manure. Do you know why they changed that? Because all the World War II veterans were dying off. There was no longer nobody left. Nobody. Yeah, there was nobody <laughs> that's why left. they changed it, by that, the way. That, that is manure. But I didn't get, I wasn't allowed to join a, uh, an American Legion until 1984, before I was actually recognized. Um, and... The Vietnam vets are the ones that said, hey, we're not going to allow this to happen again. And we are the ones that organize the, uh, the parades and, uh, you know, the motorcycle escorts and so forth. Uh, we built veterans' homes. And uh, I was associated with an American Legion in Massachusetts uh, in the uh, mid-'90s. 
And we wrote a, a plan for doing veterans' homes to get veterans someplace they could live and get rehabilitated for the homeless. And it's not about giving them a home. It's about giving them a home, giving them a purpose in life and rehabilitating them. So that to work. They could work around a house. They could, you know, like uh, rake lawns, do laundry, mop, floor. But they had to get paid. And they used that money they got paid to pay for their living expenses and their food. So it was giving them a purpose. A purpose is very important for anybody. Yeah, you have to give them a purpose for being being alive. And and also PTSD had somebody to talk to. And uh, today, veterans, even coming back from from Afghanistan and um, and the Iraq war, um, a lot of them feel isolated because nobody talks to them. Nobody's interested in them. Well, well that's we, what we, I feel We just like. had our last podcast yeah, with um, had that. Um, veterans from – we had three veterans from the Iraq war, and it was kind of brought up that maybe this was cathartic for him in particular to talk about it and certain things that you know he hadn't even talked to about to his family and being surrounded by you know two of his really good buddies who shared the same experience – was super helpful to him and he wanted to acknowledge the people that he had lost during that period of time and you know during his military career so um is there anything that you're promoting or anything that we can shed light on while you have the microphone here like um, um anything i haven't been be? as active in chicago uh, primarily because of the work i was doing um in massachusetts we were very active in setting up uh hotlines um, and actually going, finding veterans and talking to them whether they called us or not. Um, so we would get a list of all the just, you know, people who came back, and we would actually call and talk to them, invite them to you know, the Legion, invite them to a picnic, uh, just get them around veterans so they could feel comfortable in sharing their experiences. And also they had somebody to talk to. Um, in Grand Rapids, we did the same thing. I was very active in, in Veterans Affairs in Grand Rapids. Um, it's just about communication and being there for them. Um, uh, we have a, I have a good friend and Mickey knows him. Um, he comes in a bar. Um, he's very depressed. Uh, Afghan war. Um, I call him at least once a week. How you doing? Hey, you want to go out for a beer? Just to let him know that somebody cares. But he also has to open up. I, I want to say that many, 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 many civilian Americans care. Many of us care. Uh, it's it's hard. How do we reach out and you know go talk to people? But the the sacrifice that that the soldiers, the Marines, the sailors have made on our behalf, we care. Um, I, I don't want. I want people that have fought for us, that have gone off overseas, that have seen things that are horrific, that have changed them to understand that we appreciate it and very much we do care. Um, uh, that's uh, I- important. I would imagine as first responders, you suffer the same things. Uh, you see horrific things. You're asked to do different things. You spend. You have a tendency to talk to the people you're with. Um, veterans have the same thing. Uh, it's very hard for them to open up to a civilian. If there's another veteran, though, that's been in the same situation, maybe not in Afghanistan but in Vietnam or anything else, they'll talk to them because they, they feel there's a camaraderie. Well, there is a, a sense of comfort. Like, you know, with me and Severin, there are things that I – could never talk about with certain people, but I know that Severin would know where I'm coming from if I told him certain things. And, you know, I know that Severin, if, you know, he had something that he knew that I could relate to, we could sit down and I'd be able to relate instantly to what he went through. That's, sure. that's um, exactly what 
I was it, wanting to say. Yeah. Um, that's it, it is what, that is it it is that comfort level yep. that we shared the same experience that I would feel comfortable sharing with him. Exactly. That I wouldn't with anybody. It's a closed group. I mean, you know, and it's not because we think that we're better. We think it, it's just that no, we have that shared experience. And, you've had yes. You know. So, yeah, I mean, that does exist. So I can see that dynamic between you and other veterans that you guys need to surround yourselves with the people who actually need to talk to you. So um, is, is, there, is there any, like, program or official thing that, you know, we can let people know about that they can get behind, get support, like, officially? Or is it, you know, try to reach out to these guys? VFW. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, Wounded Warrior Project's one of the big ones. They do an excellent job, by the way. I'm very impressed with what they do. I'm glad um, you mentioned Wounded Warrior Project. They they had gone through their ebbs and flows. Um, they started out, they were great. They kind of sort of imploded, and now they're back and better than ever. Any any 509 charity, okay, um, runs into problems. The people who start up um, have good intentions. Um and being an individual in, um, in both in uh, Massachusetts and in Grand Rapids, working with charities and being on the boards of charities and trying to get them started and working with them, it's very difficult. Well, First you're place. working with a lot of money, and that, that good intention turns into a business yes. that you weren't intending to deal with. Yes, exactly, so and that's the problem. There, it's, <laughs> it's, you know... Uh, the learning curve, as you well, will. Yeah, it's a learning curve, yeah. and, and none of that. But you do have unscrupulous people. Yes. Yeah. Some people chase the money, and they see yeah. some money, and they don't care about the cause. That's they correct. go after it. Yeah. yeah, And that's a problem with any charity. Sure. And um, balancing that fine line between hiring good management and over-exorbitant payroll, yeah. right, which most charities face, is delicate. Well, very, very it delicate. It should never be... Um, we should never lose fact of the sight of the, that it's for the veterans and it's to take care of them. And that should be the focus. And that's what true. But in, is it any other charity? They do publish a 509 every year. They have to, it's the law. Um, anybody can go online and look at it. It's public domain. Uh, you look at the salaries. If they're spending more than 15, 20% on salaries, that's a problem. That's a problem. <laughs> well, what I've read is, you know, <laughs> Sorry. many, many charities, like 10% of the uh, income actually goes to the cause, goes to help the people that they're there to help. Uh, there's some very big names that are out there um, that many people donate that I didn't re even realize and I stopped donating to. Um, when you realize, like, hey, for every buck I give, only ten cents is actually going to help someone. The rest is going to overhead and, and salary and right, so on. Right, and, and that's so a problem. Forth. That's a huge problem, but that is typical of many charities. No, that's incorrect. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, but it is. The it biggest be. ones shouldn't, shouldn't be. be. We agree that it shouldn't. No, be. No, it shouldn't be. Um, eighty percent, uh, seventy-five to eighty percent, should go back to the for the cause. Um, if you're hiring a CEO at $250,000 a year because he's the CEO and he's raising money, he better be raising $200 million a exactly. year. Exactly. Right? Yeah, it should if be he isn't doing percent. that, I'm not paying him $250,000. Well, 
we lose sight of why charities got started. They're there to help whatever the cause is, to help right. the person, to help the individual, whatever the cause is, they're there to help that person, not to help the executive. Exactly. In, in Grand Rapids, because of Grand Rapids and because you got Tom DeVoster who owns Amway and um, uh, the, the Fox family, uh, the Van Allens who also were part of Amway, if you want to start a charity and you go to Dick, and the DeVos Foundation, and you go, hey, you know what? I'm starting this charity. Here's what we're going to do. I need 50 grand. He'll write you a check. You go to the next day, you pick it up, and you do it. Um, they never asked for what you did with it. <laughs> okay, so that's the key. Um, to do a successful charity, you really have to get the people who have the dedication to stick with it, and you find volunteers. I don't need to pay a CEO $200,000. I can find a volunteer CEO who does that for a living who's well, willing to ready. contribute his time because yep. he's not doing it. Because he cares about the cause. He's well, not doing he's it 40 hours a week. That. Right, yes. He's not doing it 40 hours a week. He might be spending four hours a week. He delegates the work to A's. CEOs don't do anything anyway. No, Trust right. me, I used to be, I, I'm a CEO. I've been a CEO in three companies. We don't do that much, okay? <laughs> not to justify our salary. But <laughs> as a capitalist, I like the salary. Yeah, but, yeah. No, it's just totally no, understandable. But as right. a but in a charity, you're not spending that much money. So unless, like I said, unless the guy's bringing in two hundred million dollars, why am I paying him two hundred thousand dollars? And well, you have to ask that question. Well, I have to say that we have gotten off track. Yes, we. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all agree okay, that we have gotten off track. Yeah. So, um, you know, we we're we're. We've done two hours, guys. Almost three. We've done two hours. Uh, it's it's an hour and fifty two minutes. Oh, the clock is that the, the it's clock two counts. different clocks. It's the second right. hour of it. Okay, so, but, man, Bill, edit that out. You know, I just want to say, uh, Bill, thank you for your service, uh, man. I'd love to have you in here, and let's. There's so much that we still. I think we just really scratched the surface with you. Um, but be glad to, to, thank you for all the amazing stories and knowledge, uh, Tony. Thank you for setting this up and you know being here together. And let us know if there's uh, anything else that you, I want to do this more. And you're kind of the front man for uh, the whiskey episode. So I'm just the whiskey guy. You're the That's whiskey it. guy. You are our whiskey guy. So you're thank you my so much. Hero. Well, thank you for you guys' service because <laughs> you're at the front lines today. We're not. <laughs> well, uh, we appreciate it. And appreciate uh, Thomas, it, uh, tell everybody where they can find your podcast. So the podcast, I mean, we're available on almost all platforms, SoundCloud, you name it, uh, Apple, uh, YouTube, Facebook, every alphaconcepts.com slash podcast. You're going to find the Alpha Concepts podcast where we talk about everything in the gun culture. And Severin, give us your spiel. Department 3C, that, um, it's a show about any and everything from a first responder's viewpoint. I love to get feedback, and I love to hear from people of what you want to hear next. So just look for us and look out for us, Department 3C, um, department3c.com, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, everywhere you can find us. And I have had both of these people on my podcast. <laughs> um, I have had Great Tom, podcast. I had Tony, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have Bill next. Yeah, so. get Bill. Uh, Bill, here's your opportunity. Plug that Mongolian podcast, buddy. <laughs> and say it in Mongolian, too. Uh, actually... Yeah, just stay tuned with the Chicago's Bravest, and uh, we'll definitely start the English podcast uh, very soon. And uh, it's the under name uh, the na under the name of the Outcast. So yeah. Sonson <laughs> 
Exactly. So thanks again. I appreciate everybody. Uh, tune in again when we do this. Uh, it's been an amazing podcast. So uh, thanks for listening. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. This has been a Fire and Iron Media production. You have something to say, people want to listen. How's that, Daddy?